The sound of various? What? We can't even be curious? They say it's nanotech in the vats, you can't be serious. Only two weeks to slow the spread, they said. Yeah, right. Take the shot, we'll hook you up with some bread. Money, baby. Make it make sense. You don't find that suspicious? You can be triple vax. Still spread it and still get it. I ain't an expert or a critic. Nah. Some of y'all sound cryptic. Like, if you ain't took the vax, expect to sleep with the fishes. Is the media making you bold? Making that heart turn cold? You get your life in exchange for your soul. First a mandatory mask, then the mandatory vax. What's next? A mandatory mark for access? First off, I ain't taking no vaccine. You know, there, there were plenty of instances where, where Ventavia should have immediately stopped enrolling based on Pfizer's own protocol and alerted them. They would miss a signature and I would flag it and a day or two later I would come back and that data point or that signature would just be there. So when I'm looking at the informed consent form and I'm comparing the patient signature which I have on a copy of his driver's license that we made as part of, you know, his demographic information. The signatures didn't match. There were three employees back from August of 2020 who were disciplined for falsifying data. So this was a problem that, that existed before I even came. For months, the vaccine was stored in a minus 70 freezer, but it still didn't meet the parameters of what, what, how it was supposed to be stored. So we have no idea whether or not that vaccine was stable at that, at that time. So the vaccinator, the person preparing the vaccine and the person injecting the vaccine, which per Pfizer's own protocol should be a medical professional, but at the location in Fort Worth, the unblinded vaccinator had zero medical experience and her job right before coming to Ventavia was at a taco restaurant. So Ventavia made millions off of this clinical trial at the risk of patients, safety, welfare, and, uh, and it integrity didn't matter to them. You know, this clinical trial data is, is fraudulent. It's based on data from not just one, not just two, but three different clinical trial sites who were all doing the same thing. They had no regard for patients, and that's what I've just 
been screaming from the top of my lungs for so long for somebody to please hear me because these are people that are volunteering themselves to research and they deserve more respect than that. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. I'm Sam. I am. Welcome to the Lifeboat live stream. Okay. Those of you last week that tuned in know that we had planned to have Brooke Jackson on the show with us as a guest, but her internet wasn't cooperating for reasons that we'll get into tonight. Um, and so we got on the phone and made plans to, she's actually in Dallas. So I decided, Hey, why don't you let me bring cameras out, sit down. That's what we did. I gave her you know, a couple hours to really walk through her story and get all the details and paint a picture for you all of how some, at least three of these trials for the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine were actually run and some of the things that went on. And as closely as I follow this, there were so many things that I was shocked to hear uh, her, her say. I mean, I just, we just played the intro clip that was the two minutes and 20 seconds that went out to all the social media platforms. That barely scratches the surface. And then in looking through some of her tweets and things that are here on her uh, Twitter page, she's also uh, on Getter as well. And I think she might be on Gab, but I don't recall. Um, looking through some of the things that she's currently going through, I'm realizing the two hours that we sat down together and described all this stuff that shocked me was just scratching the surface as well. There is so much to this. And she's been telling the story for a while. This has been going on for over a year. And it's just, it's not getting heard. And we need to change that. We need people to understand the way that these trials were run, the fraud involved, the absolute careless neglect. Um, I mean, it, it, it's, it's stunning, as you're going to see. And we need to wake people up to what this medical system has become because it's not something that serves the health and wellness of the population. It serves the pharmaceutical cartels at this point. Um, yeah. So let's leave it there. Now this is up. I just uh, posted it to my telegram group, the, the raw interview. For those of you that want to download it, you can go there t.me forward slash to the lifeboats. It's also on rumble. I think it's probably still processing over there. Uh, you're welcome to download this, take clips from it, post those on social media, whatever you want to do with it. Uh, let people see this. Um, it's important for them to know. So I guess with that said, I'm just going to try and roll this and, and shut up. But y'all know me, I like to talk. I, I might jump in if I have something I really want to say. But for now, without further ado... Oh, well, actually, maybe. You know, there, there were plenty of instances. Brooke Jackson, thank you for uh, joining us today and taking time out to uh, sit down and talk about what's happening in your life. 20 years ago, when you started in the medical industry, did you ever think you'd find yourself where you are today? That's, a, that's an easy answer, and it's no. Um, I've been in my industry now for going on 20 years. I think it's 18 and a half at this point. Uh, I started out as a clinical research coordinator, and that was at the site level. So when I started, 
you know, I was, I was tasked with inviting patients to participate in clinical research, um, going through their medical history, seeing if they qualify, really worked my way up from <clears throat> just a coordinator, not just a coordinator, but that was my, that was, uh, my job title, to a clinical trial manager, uh, director of operations, in my position as a director of operations, I, uh, the company I was working for was very similar to Ventavia in that they were responsible for managing patients in different studies for, excuse me, for different sponsors and uh, enrolling them and following them, managing um, the conduct of the study from start to finish. So Pfizer is the pharma, the pharmaceutical company is also considered the sponsor. The sponsor themselves will contract with an organization called a clinical research organization or a CRO or contract research organization. You'll hear it referred to sometimes. Pfizer would contract with ICON and then ICON was tasked with certain responsibilities and one of those was was for ICON to locate and contract with the sites. So you can consider Ventavia to be third party to Pfizer. So the phase three is um, the phase of the trial that enrolls the most clinical trial participants. For Pfizer's vaccine study, we were looking to enroll, you know, approximately 40 plus thousand patients. So at that particular stage, you know, it, it can sometimes get busy. But um, it's very important, like you mentioned, to have and make sure that those trials are controlled, um, randomized. They are either blinded or unblinded, depending on the protocol. In Pfizer's vaccine study, it was important for um, some of the staff that were working on the trial to stay and um, stay blinded. And that was one of the things that I noticed early on was, was the unblinding of clinical trial participants. So the total number of participants when I started in September of 2020, there were, and this is between all three sites, but again, I was just the regional director of two. We had another director who was in charge of the third site in, in Houston, Texas. And at the time that, that I started, there were approximately 1,200 patients that were enrolled between all three of the sites. Right away, when I, when I walked into Ventavia, the clinic was so busy we had a five exam rooms. There were people when I, when I was touring the clinic that were waiting in the hallway, in the reception area. It was just, it was just kind of chaotic is, is the way that I've described it. I've been involved in other, other trials that were, that were heavily enrolling at, at certain points. And you know, you do have people wait obviously, but they were just outside of the clinic in the, um, imagine a, like a professional building where there's multiple doctor's offices mm -hmm. and you can go from floor to floor and, you know, floor one would be a cardiologist's office and floor three was Ventavia's, floor four was an obstetrician office, obstetrician's office. And people were, were outside of the clinic waiting in this long hallway and just folding chairs, people inside the clinic waiting in the waiting area. And then even people inside where the exam rooms were who were kind of lined up outside of an exam room in the laboratory area that we had. So it just, it seemed, it seemed off to me. It wasn't anything like I'd seen before. 
In September, when I, when I started working there, they were at the point in the trial where they were enrolling into, into the study, into the vaccine study, and others as well. There were, they were not just participating in, in Pfizer's you know, vaccine trial. They were doing RSV studies. They were doing uh, C. diff studies, pneumonia studies. They, they, they had a ton of research going on there. So, you know, um, people were there for, for different reasons. The majority of the people that were there then were p uh, patients that were interested in getting into the study. When I was there on the first day and met some of the coordinators that were, were seeing these study patients, there were only four of them. And we needed probably triple, triple, I'm sorry. It's okay. You want to handle it? Yeah. Definitely understaffed. That was one of the first things besides, you know, just how few few exam rooms we had that I noticed, uh, the number of clinical trial staff. Again, I, th I think, you know, to fairly see the number of patients that we were actually seeing on a, on a daily basis, we're talking sometimes 20, sometimes 40, sometimes 60. And the screening visit, and, and that's the visit where the, the patients introduced to the clinical trial where you go over the specifics of the informed consent form, which was really long. It was 20 plus pages of information about the study that, that it's our responsibility as researchers to make sure that these patients are fully aware of the potential risks mm -hmm. that they face during their participation. We were not doing that properly we were not ensuring that the patient understood what those risks were. We were not helping them to understand their responsibilities in participating in a study and what visits they needed to complete. There was an e-diary that captured their symptoms after, after the shot. If you've never participated in a clinical trial before, it's not that it's complicated, but you know, and especially if you're using a device that we provision to you to capture your symptoms, or if we have to download an application on your phone, it takes time to explain that and to go over what's gonna happen on day one and day 19 to 21, to follow up month one, to follow up month 20, you know, six and 24. So I would say in my experience that explaining a trial like this, a, a design like this, that it would have taken me with each patient an hour plus. And probably until I got my, um, my wording down and, and how to like walk the, walk the patient through the trial, um, you know, once I got my practice in, um, in the way that I explain it, that could certainly speed up. But what I saw the first time that, that I, I shadowed one of my clinical research coordinators was not an informed consent. She knew that this patient, they had a recruiting department, so she knew the patient wanted to participate in the study. So she went through it briefly, but had the pages like tabbed where the patient needed to sign. And maybe she was nervous because I was there, I don't know but it just wasn't a, a, a full and complete informed consent. So with her, you know, the patient's permission, I was in the room, of course, but I took over that informed consent process for this coordinator, and I made sure that this one patient was, was properly consented. Um, 
So, so lack of informed consent, and while we're on that subject, there were many times when I was auditing the charts at location one or location two, it didn't matter, I was finding the same thing, mm-hmm. where they would miss a signature, they meaning the coordinator or even you know the patient would miss the place where, where there was a signature required, and there was multiple places, multiple pages. And so I would, I would, you know, flag that and come back and the, another signature, would, the signature would all of a sudden appear. And this happened not just informed, on informed consent, but in the study documents that we were um, uh, using to collect data points, you know, there would be something missing and I would flag it. And a day or two later, I would come back and that data point or that signature would just be there. So when I'm looking at the informed consent form and I'm comparing the patient signature, which I have on a copy of his driver's license that we made as part of you know, his demographic information, the signatures didn't match. And you know, going back through some of the emails that, that I was copied on from as far back as August of 2020, so even before I started, I was forwarded these emails and I start to go through them and the auditors or quality control or quality assurance personnel were finding the exact same things that I were. There were three employees back from August of 2020 who were disciplined for falsifying data. So this was a problem that, that existed before I even came. What should the process have been? Well, when you have to find out why? Why? Why was that done? Yeah, it you almost know. suggests that if they're missing signatures, it's because they're not actually covering the pages with the patient. Exactly. In the informed consent process is that. It, that's a, that's a, 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 a definitely a fair assessment, you know, in speed and rush and haste, <clears throat> and and as I watched this clinical trial progress, and even though I was only there for eighteen days. I have a trained eye. This is, I'm an expert in the clinical trial process, especially from a site level. Um, I'm a trained clinical trial auditor. This is what my eyes look for. So when I'm noticing these differences in signatures, that's something that I would have immediately reported to the Institutional Review Board. You know, and, and, and determined why, why that happened. Why did you forge the signature? Who forged the signature? But, it, you know, th- that would have been where I started and definitely to alert the, the, the sponsor, Pfizer in this case. You know, there, there were plenty of instances where, where Ventavia should have immediately stopped enrolling based on Pfizer's own protocol and alerted them. One was to the unblinding of the clinical trial participants. Now, I want to be very clear. There was a point that Pfizer actually unblinded all the clinical trial participants. I believe that was about six months after. You're probably and, right. And then they allowed the, the unvaccinated to take the vaccine. Right. So there was a crossover at, at some point, and I just don't want to misspeak about the date. Um, but this is before that happened. So before Pfizer said everybody that's, that's, that wants to cross over and actually get the vaccine that originally received placebo, that's okay, we're allowing that. So before that happened, Ventavia unblinded every single one of those 1,200-ish 
clinical trial participants. And we talked about the gold standard, randomized clinical trials, these were supposed to be blinded. The bias that that potentially injects into a clinical trial is just the, the magnitude of what that, ha that has the potential to do, I, I, I can't understate, you know, or overstate, rather. It, it was just sloppy, you know, I've heard it described sloppy very often. And that's certainly what it was, but again, per Pfizer's protocol, when we were alerted to these patients being unblinded, we should have stopped enrolling and contacted Pfizer and let them know that there's this, there's this unblinding that happened. What was the reason that Ventavia gave for doing the unblinding? <clears throat> they didn't realize that in the source document worksheets that every site has the ability to create on their own. Some of the clinical trial sites that participated in the study would have done everything electronically. Ventavia did everything manually. So when, when we're seeing a patient and we go into the exam room, we have a, a paper chart that every piece of data is, is written on paper. And so it, think of it as, as, again, a worksheet, an instruction. You know, at this visit, you do this, this, and this. At the next visit, you do that, that, and that. Um, in the instructions on the bottom of the randomization page that, you know, um, listed the screening number, the randomization number. Um, there were other things that were collected on this one particular sheet, but they made an error and put in the bottom of the instructions that the randomization scheme should be placed right behind that worksheet. So the coordinators who were following these instructions followed those instructions by printing out um, and making a copy of that randomization scheme that they should not have had access to and putting it in the chart for all of the blinded staff okay. had access, including the investigator. So when you say unblinding, you're talking about the Ventavia staff who are interfacing with the patients. Are, are, were the patients themselves unblinded uh, prematurely? There was definitely opportunity for patients to see whether or not they were getting the vaccine or placebo because it was left out yeah. on a counter that the patients were sitting right next to. So if they knew by chance that their screening number was 11281001, if they knew that number was assigned to them and then they saw the container and, and you know, the, it was definitely possible to, to to make that determination. The second thing that, that would have warranted immediate, immediately stopping the trial and alerting Pfizer would have been to the improper storage of the vaccine in terms of, of the temperature. So if you remember, remember in the very beginning, the, the vaccine had to be stored at minus 70. And so, <clears throat> you know, we, we had that capability but what Ventavia did not realize was that Pfizer's vaccine was being stored at a temperature outside of that range. So for months, the vaccine was stored in a minus 70 freezer, but it still didn't meet the parameters of what 
what, how it was supposed to be stored. So right. we have no idea whether or not that vaccine was stable at that, at that time. So almost what you're describing, there's, I guess I'm taking it, there's temperature logs inside the freezer and those temperature logs showed that it did not stay within defined parameters required by Pfizer? Exactly. Okay. Yes. And do we even know what that, what potential effects that has on the vaccine? I mean, at the mo at the time, no, certainly, you know, they, they weren't looking at it. They didn't think to look at it. It was just, they were so busy just trying to make sure that they could bring more patients in. You know, Pfizer was, or excuse me, Ventavia was paid on a, mainly on a per patient basis. So every patient that they enrolled into that clinical trial, they were paid for. There were other, you know, obviously other things that, that you get compensated for. For example, you know, startup fees, which can be in the tens of thousands of dollars. In my experience with this type of study, I never saw financials at Ventavia. The CEO's mother handled all that. But I imagine, again, this is just based on experience, that every one of those patients that they enrolled was, was approximately $10,000. So Ventavia made millions off of this clinical trial at the risk of patients' safety, welfare, and uh, and integrity didn't matter to them. You know, this clinical trial data is is fraudulent. It's based on data from not just one, not just two, but three different clinical trial sites who were all doing the same thing. There were problems similar to what I'm describing at one site happening at, across all clinical trial sites. There were <clears throat> unblinded vaccinators. So the vaccinator, the person preparing the vaccine and the person injecting the vaccine, which per Pfizer's own protocol should be a medical professional, and that's that's defined in different ways. But at the location in Fort Worth, the unblinded vaccinator had zero medical experience, and her job right before coming to Ventavia was at a taco restaurant. And I'm from I'm from Texas. I love a good taco, but you know this is just the kind of um, mismanagement of the clinical trial all around. I mean, there, if, if it's not one thing, it's another. The I do want to jump in here. That was absolutely stunning to me. You know, the person drawing them out is the one determining the dose. And if there, it sounds like there's nobody there to check that person. Are they getting the right dose? We know that's happening where Kids were given the adult version of the vaccine. Who knows what kind of mistakes were being made there? This person's injecting something into their body. Are they aspirating? And of course, you've got some of the COVID uh, or the vaccine-believing doctors talking about, oh, you don't need to do that, and da, da 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 da. And yet, we have person after person who gets this shot, <clears throat> tastes metal in their mouth because it likely hit you know, the bloodstream and started getting circulated around the body. We know that happens from all of the postmortem studies that have been done. It goes all over the body. And like here they have somebody who has no idea what they're doing, giving these shots to trial participants after they've been left in a freezer below or above the temperature required to keep them stable. So like, 
who knows what happened to those doses. I, I, I mean, they picked that number for a reason and they were below that number. So what should, what likely happened is that mRNA started degrading those lipids. Those are, those are fats. Have you, have you left like a, a fat out on your counter for too long? What happens? Does it smell good? That's what they were injecting into people. Did it make it worse? Did it make it better? Because instead of the full dose of mRNA, they got a tiny fraction that survived. I don't think we know. I don't think we know. But one thing is for sure, this data should have been discarded. If they were running an ethical, scientific trial, they violated procedure after procedure after procedure, didn't notify Pfizer like they, were, they should have. And as she's calling this out, and she's got some recordings of when she was fired, of also a meeting that she had, I think the day before, calling out these, identifying these problems to management and saying, we, this, this needs to be fixed. <clears throat> we can't let this continue. And they're all worried about the, <clears throat> the pictures that she took on her phone because there might be confidential patient data disclosed in those photos and made sure to remind her that she has to delete everything, you know, from the job. I, I mean, it's just... They were getting paid by the head. She thinks it's ballpark 10,000. You add that up to the 1,100 and change patients that they had, and it's $10 million range, possibly. I mean, that's serious money. And they could have hired the professionals that they needed to do this, and they just, they didn't. They could have quarantined the product after the, these freezers were found, and I'm guessing they bought the freezers, would be my guess is they bought them, they brought them in, plugged them in, and okay, it's good to go. And nobody actually set, took the time to program and set the temperature for months and months. I, I, I should have asked her that. I didn't, but um, I'm guessing that's probably what went down. So th this, this trial data is beyond suspect it is unusable and should have been discarded. And who knows how many others were run exactly the same way with even bigger problems. And that's before we even get to the manufacturing side, which we're going to talk about with another whistleblower. That's an even bigger shit show. Like some of these labs, I was told today, Port E. coli down the down the drain, <laughs> like whatever. It's just a you know big deadly pathogen, but let's just dump it in the sewer. What could go wrong? All right, let's get back to this. I, I want to take you back real quick, sure. just to the freezers because yeah. what Pfizer's told us the reason they're stored at minus eighty is to prevent the mRNA from degrading. Mm -hmm. So, and you're saying the temperature controls while they were kept cold, they weren't kept to the spec that Pfizer provided. So potentially that sets up a situation, and this, please expand on this and let me know if this is correct, but it seems like that would set up the situation where you're injecting more of a placebo than an active biologic. Is that 
Absolutely, and per Pfizer's protocol, if it is stored outside of those parameters, like you mentioned, it, any of the vaccine that was stored improperly should immediately have been quarantined and not given to anybody else. And there were months, two plus, maybe even closer to three, where it was outside of that range. Wow. Mm-hmm. A wow is right. Yes, every day, every day that I was there, I said wow about something. There's, there's, and even still today, I will find something in the new release of data and, and mining through that over the last you know, week or 10 days. I find something that shocks the hell out of me every single day. One of the things that shocks me the most is that the FDA, the Department of Justice, other branches within our government have known about this since September 25th of 2020 and still have not been to Ventavia site to even investigate my allegations. So I contacted the FDA September 25th of 2020 and spoke to a person on the phone who directed me to their website and I filled out a complaint and I did that about 9.30 in the morning on the 25th of September 2020 again. And about six hours later, I was getting a call from Ventavia that I was being fired. I was on my termination paperwork. It says that I was not a good fit. Here, we can actually listen to that right here. I'm sorry, Katie. Go, go ahead. Okay, so I'm actually on the phone with Mercedes, and we just wanted to talk with you a little bit. If you have time, please. Sure, sure, absolutely. Do you, let me close the door. Okay, I'm 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 ready. Okay, hi, Brooke. Hi, it's Mercedes. Hi there. So, um, due to some recent issues that we've um, had brought to our attention uh-huh. and have been discussing with you, we do feel like um, your performance as a regional director. Issues like, you know, the fact that you called the FDA on us and Pfizer and told them we're a bunch of morons who have no clue how to run this trial and are violating your protocols and procedures left and right and y'all should fucking do something like that during our introductory period is not a good fit for Ventavia and per our company's introductory period policy um, we are going to end your employment effective immediately and then the second one's all about any specific pictures that you took um, within our facility that contain confidential study and patient information so um, I need you to understand that a breach of any of those agreements um, will be met with legal action. Um, and we've actually sent you a letter to your personal email uh, that you can reference after this call. Um, it should be reviewed. Um, I'll also be sending you the termination paperwork. Uh, that I would like for you to sign and return to me the letter. You do not have to sign. That's just for your reference. Mm-hmm. 
anyway, so they continue on and talk to her about, you know, you said you told us you'd delete everything, and so we'll sue you if you don't. And I don't know if she did or not, but she's going through a lot of the documents that are being released and uh, finding. We're going to talk about some of this stuff in a minute. She's got uh, one of the so so. As this goes on, they're just so overwhelmed and see, you know, dollar signs at Ventavia. They're obviously seeing dollar signs dancing in their head because they're making millions of dollars a week running this trial and they want to milk this baby for all it's worth. So they start bringing in relatives, husbands of the CEO work there. And I mean, it just gets so absolutely corrupt and, um, uh, it, yeah, we'll just, I'll let her tell you some more here. And I'm pretty sure I wasn't a good fit because I refused to be complicit in, in what they were doing, the fraud that they were committing. On the 17th of September, after speaking with two other directors, I made <clears throat> the decision to recommend to the two uh, managing members slash owners and other members of the leadership team that we immediately stop enrolling in the clinical trial and alert Pfizer to what we'd found, especially with the unblinding and the improper storage. And, and I was surprised they actually agreed that we should take a time out. But what shocked me was the text message that went out right after this call had ended. And the text message was from one of the managing members. Her name is Olivia Ray. And she and the other managing member, owner, wanted to make sure that we all had a consistent message for Pfizer. And instead of being honest about what we were finding in the clinical trial, not just the unblinding piece, not just the the temperature excursion piece, but improper informed consent, the, the fabrication, the falsification of data, the not reporting serious adverse events and following up on those in a timely manner, the one that, that I brought up this day had not been followed up on in 11 days. And I just wanted to make it very clear to Ventavia that this was violating so many federal regulations that if we were ever inspected by the FDA, that I had no doubt that there would be official action indicated and that they would more than likely immediately stop Ventavia from enrolling in any other study, which they should have. That, that's exactly what should have happened. Brooke Jackson, thank proper informed consent, the, the fabrication finding in every other study that I was looking at and that I was, I was managing and overseeing. Sorry. So not just, you know, sound, guys. I guess that's not in anybody's defense, but it was happening across the board. It was systemic for sure. And you've worked <clears throat> at other fraudulent. No, it's based on data from not just one, not just two, but three different clinical trial sites who were And this, uh, please expand on this and let me know if this is correct. But it seems like that would set up the situation where... 
getting a call from Ventavia that there we go. Okay. The the fabric. Sorry about that. I got my place got lost. I was going to jump in and say something. The mic was muted. That was just a little mini train wreck there. We'll get back on track. I'll just let it play. Um, you know, oh yeah. So she's reaching out to the FDA, but the problem is these organizations are so politicized that like the agenda was to push the vaccine was to coerce everybody into taking it to funnel tens of billions of dollars into the drug cart to the pharmaceutical cartels and all of the, you know, testing sites. I gave you the example of the guy that made $25 million on one testing site that he, you know, went and got certified and started processing just COVID tests, set it up just for their little pandemic. And that was 25 million in profits for one testing site, probably outside of one major city where there's dozens. Right. And we saw, Richard Citizen journalists go into one of those in D.C. and an old Walgreens that's closed because, well, they've crashed the economy doing all of this. This is all part of their plan to bring about this great reset and push their new policies on us. And so I think part of the brick walls that Brooks running into is uh, the government is pushing their agenda and. I guess the key people have been co-opted for whatever reason they're pushing this on us. And so they're willing to overlook these things because they're not independent. They're compromised. And I just, so it's, I think it's a hard thing for a lot of people to realize. So. The falsification of data, the not reporting serious adverse events and following up on those in a timely manner. The one that, that I brought up this day had not been followed up on in 11 days. And I just wanted to make it very clear to Ventavia that this was violating so many federal regulations that if we were ever inspected by the FDA that I had no doubt that there would be official action indicated and that they would more than likely immediately stop Ventavia from enrolling in any other study, which they should have. That, that's exactly what should have happened. You're, you're saying they would have come in and shut down the company across the board? I believe so, yes. Yes, because this isn't what I'm finding and what I was finding in, in Pfizer's vaccine study was what I was finding in every other study that I was looking at and that I was, I was managing and overseeing. So not just, you know, I guess that's not in anybody's defense, but it was happening across the board. It was systemic for sure. And you've worked <clears throat> at other. And she points out there that it was the same. Not, it, this wasn't just specific to the COVID vaccine trial, right? Like it, they were doing it for all of the different companies and they were running trials for Moderna as well and everybody else. But they were running their other uh, RSV and so forth, some of the ones that she listed, in the same manner with these same kind of systemic problems because they're not somebody that should be, I guess, doing this in the first place. And um, the government is not providing the proper protections and oversight that it should. Like, that's what she pointed out. They still have yet to actually go visit one of the clinical sites and look at the data and the data that they get goes through the pharmaceutical cartels machine 
that scrubs it. And she's going to talk about data cleaning here in a little bit. And this is key because they take the bad data or, you know, the trial data and they have people change it and they reinterpret it and massage it, you know, to present something almost completely different that supports their narrative or whatever narrative they can come up with. And they hand that over to the FDA without the original source data. And that's something that really just can't be allowed. It just can't be allowed. Companies that have run clinical trials, correct? Absolutely. And, yeah. and like, I'm sure they all run into occasional problems and so forth. Sure. What was so different about Ventavia? There are mistakes. We're human, right? Yeah. There are mistakes that are going to be made. I've missed signatures before on consent forms in the 20 years that I've been doing this. I will never forget a time when I dispensed a wrong medication to one of my patients. Now, there's a process that we had in place, luckily, to make sure that I had somebody check me in that check process, that medication didn't get to the patient. But I made a mistake and we made sure that the patient was safe by having this plan in place to ensure that there was somebody to check me. And Tavia had none of that. It was just fly by the seat of your pants. This isn't a, a typical clinical trial. This is a factory, in and out, in and out, in and out. We don't care. They had no regard for patients, and that's what I've just been screaming from the top of my lungs for so long, for somebody to please hear me, because these are people that are volunteering themselves to research, and they deserve more respect than that. Yeah, and, and on the informed <clears throat> consent form that Pfizer provided for the COVID-19 vaccine, knowing what we know today, do you feel like that was a proper informed consent? Um, you know, what kind of things were included on it? Oh, you know, there's always, you know, kind of like a, when you're when you're hired for a new company and at the at the very end, next to the asterisk, they'll tell you other duties as assigned. Those are how, how informed consent forms are kind of laid out sometimes too. It, these are risks that um, are anticipated. For example, the systemic reaction that you would get after an uh, injection, like, um, you know, redness, um, fever, body aches, headache, those types of, of things and reactions that you would expect from an inoculation. But then there's that little asterisk down at the bottom that says, you know, other adverse events that are unknown. So it's really hard to say, you know, was it a, was it a properly um, written informed consent? I would say, you know, they, they had an investigate, or excuse me, a, a regulatory body that was in charge of making sure that informed consents were, you know, available, that they were working under the correct protocol. Um, so... Yes, I would say that it was written appropriately. Was it administered correctly? No. Okay. Now, that was a little surprising to me when she covered it that way. So you would think in phase one and phase two, they would have an idea of the side effects that they saw in the earlier phases and, you know, list those. And I remember we had the FDA slide that was accidentally, you know, they didn't talk about it. They kind of skipped over it in the deck and it had uh, like two columns of adverse events of special interest, I think is what they called it. I don't remember the date on that, but I'm going to 
find that and Brooke may already know. Uh, but I'm curious to know, like they had to know at some point in this process that, well, we're seeing all of these types of adverse events and that was getting swept under the rug from the sound of it. So, um, and when you talk about follow up with the adverse events and, mm -hmm. and just go back and walk us through more of what was happening <coughs> with the, the patients in the trial. I was not patient facing, so I didn't see and, and speak to a lot of patients directly. So that was the job of the clinical research coordinator, and it should have been the job of the principal investigator, the doctor, the study doctor, to oversee these patients and the problems. What I was being alerted to more um, directly was, was from Pfizer in that the data that was in their database was missing. So um, something would be collected at the site level and then manually entered into Pfizer's database, but it wasn't a complete, um, a complete picture. They would report an adverse event or a serious adverse event and, for example, wouldn't follow up on that for some time. So you have you know, a serious adverse event reported, but information being asked by the sponsor repeatedly. We need to know, and the sponsor is Pfizer, we need to know what's going on. Let us know, is this patient still in the hospital? Um, and, and Ventavi was just so busy seeing those patients in and out the door that they weren't able to follow up on emails, phone calls that the, the site was getting from patients directly. You know, I, I actually took one of those calls and a patient was having a problem and it was um, with a motion in her arm and tried to get a hold of the principal investigator because he was very rarely on site. Um, so just situations like that, but so many that you just couldn't keep, you couldn't keep track. Couldn't keep track of them. We did not have enough staff. And eventually, you know, they, they started bringing in family members um, the two owners of the company, their husbands worked there. I just found today where one of the owners of, of the company's husband was changing the medical history on a patient that, um, on a patient of mine at the, the, the Fort Worth site that had died. I, and I just found, I haven't even had a chance to fully like research that yet, but I'm like, why is he editing medical <coughs> records after the fact. editing a medical record at any point he's not trained he's not added to the delegation of authority log which is a regulatory document that has to be uh, completed by the study doctor and and why Pfizer is responsible for this is because they should have been there making sure that all the I's were dotted and all the T's were crossed and they failed and I think that that has a lot to do with the the demographic of patients in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. We, and research is, is typically looked at favorably in, in our community. And Pfizer and Ventavia were directly targeting our minority demographic and our high-risk patients, which included, you know, our healthcare workers, our first responders were, were something that Pfizer was really after. They were really looking for that patient population. And why do you think that is? 
You're going to have to speculate. Yeah, I'm going to have to speculate because per FDA's guidance, when, and this was for any of the vaccine candidates, you know, they they designed a, a document, a guidance document for how the vaccines and the clinical trials should be designed. The FDA needed to know, wanted to know how this vaccine um, affected and how um, how efficacious it was in, in those populations. So that's not unusual, but what's unusual is for a CRO like Icon and a pharma company like Pfizer to have so much data that's outstanding, so many queries that are outstanding, so much you know, just chaos in their study that they would keep giving Ventavia more and more patients if they could enroll those minority demographic, our, our frontline healthcare workers and those that were at high risk. Okay. So it's- and if you remember Brittany Gavin, so we talked about what's going on with her. She's like nine months in to her vaccine injury, which you know, the, the post filing of VAERS report and she had Guillain-Barre, she's got a number of other uh, vaccine injury uh, effects that she's dealing with. And they still have not reported her case to the CDC for, for them to investigate and then try and dismiss it yet another way. Right. So it's like this gauntlet of let's make this disappear. Let's make this go away. Somebody in the chat saying some doctors are getting paid 30 grand per patient. And he can, he's saying, I absolutely can tell you that it's not all adverse events are reported, especially in the big dollar, the big money drug trials, right? They, like they're going to, they want to report what's going to make them 10, 20, $30 billion. And that's that. And if some people have to die for that, well, that's acceptable to them. That's, that's really what we're dealing with here. Sounds like they had, it, it almost, you're describing a situation in my mind where the FDA has given marching orders to Pfizer to enroll these certain demographics and they're in turn handing it off down to the clinics, telling them to go enroll these people and the clinics themselves are getting. And that's one of the other thoughts I had maybe they were targeting healthcare workers so that they could somehow select them out and present, see, look, here's what it's doing for the healthcare workers that we had in the trial and use that as to gain further points with the so-called regulators, right? Getting paid by the enrollment, not necessarily by the follow-up and following proper procedures. So in a way, it almost seems like the financial incentives enabled this, uh, this kind of behavior. From the site level, absolutely, absolutely. That was a, a driver, um, you know, to, to be a, a high enroller in a clinical trial mm-hmm. is, is, and can be a, a great thing if you're managing the trial properly and you're ensuring that the safety of the patients is your number one priority. But this wasn't. It wasn't considered, um, and and it shows in the number of just adverse events and serious adverse events that were happening at my sites in particular. And it, there comes a point when 
when those serious adverse events stop. So in the, in the beginning of the trial, you have all these reports of you know, adverse events, serious adverse events. When I started working at Ventavia, that was one of my complaints, was that we were not following up on these reported adverse events correctly from what was coming in um, from phone calls and you know, a, a different sources. <clears throat> but then those, th th again, they stopped. They stopped happening. So there were a lot of, of serious adverse events at my site. Then those kind of go away. And that's when I come in and I say, why are we not collecting this data? Why are you not following up on a serious adverse event? And it's been 11 days. That's a problem. So that's kind of been one of, of the theories that's, that I've seen kind of going around, you know, in just this recent release. But again, you know, data, going through that data is, is, is a challenge. And what I've also found is that in, in a lot of cases, what's been reported by Pfizer to the United States Food and Drug Administration is completely different to what's being reported to the EMA, for example. And I'm finding that in, in documents every day. Pfizer is saying that there were 153 clinical trial sites that enrolled the 44,000 patients. What I'm saying, I looked at Ventavia's website just recently, and there was a picture of an award that was given by Pfizer for their efforts in the vaccine trial. And when I zoomed in on this picture, it, the number was 154 not 153. So the first place that I looked was the New England Journal of, of Medicine <clears throat> publication from back in December, I believe it was. And I started looking at the authors. And I looked at the first author, and that was the principal investigator at the clinical trial site in Argentina, where there was over 5,000 clinical trial patients that were enrolled. The next author that I looked at was one that wasn't listed in the clinical trial documents that were released to one of the regulatory authorities. But in another document, I found that he had actually been enrolling in this clinical trial, and his site number is 1041, which is listed in some places, but not in others. So why are they hiding that? And I think, um, you know, it, again, it takes so long to go through this data and, and trying to, you know, make sense of not just um, the case report forms for the individual patients, but also, you know, the, the safety and the efficacy and, you know, going through all these clinical trial sites. And I'm looking at their, their resumes and their financial disclosures. And... It, it just takes a long time, but I think I think there may be one other site out there that that hasn't been reported. And it just suggests that maybe there's something in there that they they had to hide. That's the only thing. I mean, it, there have been so many so many organizations that have called for transparency in clinical trials for years, and that's really. Um, that's really my, my goal, my end goal in all of this, one, is to have 
Ventavia stop enrolling patients in studies until somebody gets out there and investigates and ensures that these patients are safe. Two, for there to be some change in the way that we get drugs approved in the United States Mm -hmm. to have this, you know, process where the pharma company pays user fees to, you know, basically themselves to, and, and, you know, it just, it has to change. That's, that's got to change. There has to be some standardization in the way that the sites collect data, the way that that data is presented to the pharmaceutical company and the way the pharmaceutical company has an opportunity to clean that data and make it look any way that they want to before they send it <clears throat> to the FDA for approval. That's what happens. And I don't think people understand that. And it's really scary as hell. We've got Maddie DeGray, who's in one of the younger uh, Mm -hmm. Pfizer trials, who was injured. She's paralyzed in a wheelchair, and they have her listed as basically having a stomach ache. Yeah, I think she has an NG tube, too. Yeah, and that's, you know, that that's part of the whole data cleaning process. You know, in the way that the clinical trial protocol was designed, they can manipulate um, and design these trials in a way where data that's needed for, for patient safety, it can be just wiped away. And that's even if it makes it to Pfizer in the first place, because what you've just described is a situation where it's not even being collected or followed up on. You're right. You're right. And, and I watched Pfizer push so hard, um, Ventavia. And I imagine that if this misconduct happened at, at Ventavia, surely that it happened elsewhere. It had to have, it had to have. We've, we've also got the situation where <clears throat> it's a revolving door. The people in the regulatory companies know if they do a solid for <laughs> you know one of the drug companies, they can get the $250,000, $350,000 a year consulting job down the road yeah. and life's gonna be good for them. Um, it, is the, do you think there was collaboration between the regulators and Pfizer between the regulators and Ventavia? I don't know that there was, you know, collusion between the, the you know, FDA themselves and Ventavia, okay. but I'm pretty damn sure that, you know, it's not just a coincidence that I call and speak to somebody at Pfizer and then I file a complaint, um, or excuse me, you know, call the FDA and file a complaint against Ventavia for a Pfizer study, and just a few hours later, Ventavia fires me. I think the FDA contacted um, Pfizer, and Pfizer had a direct line to anybody, really, at, um, at the company, at Ventavia. And you told me another story when you were on with Reiner giving testimony mm-hmm. for the grand jury. Mm-hmm. In the middle of that interview, you got a you started getting phone calls. Would you walk through that? I feel like just targeted in terms of you know my internet connections. I've had a million weird things happen, and we can kind of go back to that. But after my FDA complaint, after the FDA called me on the 29th of October to go over that complaint in detail, on October 9th. I started getting phone calls from an unknown number on my personal cell phone number. 
Those were from Pfizer's attorney, actually. He called my phone repeatedly, you know, three or four times from an unknown, a number I didn't recognize, so I didn't answer. And when I didn't answer, he finally started to text message me. And the first text message, he introduced himself, and it, the text message read, Miss Jackson, my name is Mark Barnes. I'm Pfizer's attorney, and I would like to talk to you about the problems that you have relayed about the clinical trial. And so my first question to him was, Mr. Barnes, how did you know my name was Miss Jackson? And his response was that he just assumed that my name was Miss Jackson. And so my next question was, well, how did you get my phone number? This is my personal cell phone. How did you get it? And he said that he got it from a Pfizer employee that I spoke to in September, right after I was fired, which was interesting because I didn't give that Pfizer employee my personal cell phone number either. I called from my husband's work phone number, and that number was unlisted. It didn't identify the person or the caller. I'd made multiple attempts from the 17th of September through um, like two or three times, tried to call this Pfizer representative. He was a, our direct contact, a, a liaison, if you will. So direct Pfizer employee. And I tried to call him several times from my husband's phone number to, to tell him what, what I was finding at Ventavia. Never got a hold of him. I did never leave a message. So I found it really interesting that he, you know, called me the day after I was fired. I never told him what my name was. He never asked what my name was, just what my problems were, and was really worried about whether or not I'd contacted the FDA. And so I told this liaison with Pfizer that I did contact the FDA, and the conversation was brief. You know, again, I didn't tell him who I was, but it was an, it was an anonymous complaint. In the story with him. But Mark Barnes, Pfizer's attorney, said that he got my phone number from the gentleman I made the anonymous complaint to, which I knew was a lie. And so I told Mark Barnes this, you know, I didn't give him my phone number. And now my I'm curious to know who who these other people are, because there was a, a part in the text message where he said, me and others want to talk to you about it. That's what it, that's what it was, me and others. So when he said others, that kind of, it just made me feel a certain way, you know, like, like that was a word used to intimidate me. So when I asked him, what do you mean, who do you mean by others? He just said me and other regulatory um, compliance people. When you look at the text message, and you read it, it does really genuinely, genuinely look like Mr. Barnes might be concerned and wanting to follow up and do his diligence and, and the right thing. But when you couple the, the words that he used, the assumption of my name and the mention of other people with back-to-back -back phone calls that I didn't answer, it just made me feel like, like he was using those calls and the you know, text message and words that he chose to intimidate me. I, you know, if, if, in my mind, if you're an attorney at his caliber and you have a question for somebody that 
as a potential, you know, whistleblower in a trial that you would want to send me something more professional, like, you know, a letter on your letterhead, you know, or, you know, well, something and, like that. And the question is still outstanding, like, where did they get the number? Yeah, yeah, I think really, I mean, this is, again, just an assumption, but I think that after I contacted the FDA, that they contacted Pfizer, and Pfizer contacted Ventavia, and that's why I was fired. Okay. Okay. So then take us through kind of what other interactions you've had with the FDA and the regulatory agencies after filing the complaint. One phone call with the FDA on the 29th of October. I spoke to an inspector, Cannon, for a little over an hour about the problems that I was seeing. We went over every bullet in my complaint. I think there were 14 different action items, if you will. And that's the last time I've heard from the FDA. Okay. And I think I saw the, le the response to that. They <clears throat> had them and had given out action items and kind of let you know, hey, we've got your complaint. We're not going to tell you the outcome of it. If you want to mm -hmm. know how it turned out, file a FOIA request. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yep. That's the last time I've heard from the FDA. Once I realized that the FDA was not going to take any action and Pfizer oh, was awarding Ventavia with new clinical trials, new studies to run on our adolescents, on our children, in pregnant women, and in new indications such as, you know, they, they were doing some RSV studies, but given more vaccine trials to other sponsors that were vaccine, COVID vaccine candidates like Novavax and J&J um, &J and um, Moderna even. Ventavia is participating. <clears throat> Ventavia is participating in every one of the vaccine candidates for COVID-19. So we might be seeing this across the board. You are seeing it across the board. I have documentation and internal company documents. Everything that I have on the Pfizer trial, I have on every other one of the trials as well. And given this is a brand new mRNA technology that works unlike any other vaccine, so much so that the CDC had to change the definition of what it means to be vaccinated. Should we be concerned? 100%, yes. Yes. What's concerning me most at the moment, and it's like always in the back, <clears throat> back of my head, I, I find myself up, you know, till four or five o'clock in the morning, and I'm like, shoot, my daughter's gonna be up, you know, my son's gonna be up for school, in like an hour, I better get some sleep, but it's just like I told you, when you, when you are following a clinical trial from the start through the completion of the study, it should tell a story uh, of their journey in the study. And these stories and their journey just does not make sense to me for a lot of reasons, you know, one, again, it's, it's, the, it's Pfizer's database, how they created that database, and certain data points that they're capturing and others that they're not, that you need to be able to, to tell that story again. You know, um, data managers asking 
Ventavia to change diagnosis of a hospitalization. And, you know, to Ventavia's credit, they, they reply back and say, we can't change a diagnosis of a hospitalization. That's what the patient was diagnosed with, and we can't do that. So, again, that, that is to Ventavia's credit that they didn't do that in this one particular case that I'm looking at. But, <clears throat> you know, we talked a little bit about Ventavia's family members working on the study, and I just saw one of Ventavia's owner's husbands changing medical history on one of my patients that died. And <clears throat> it, you, just don't, you just don't do that. There's <clears throat> lots of conflicts of interest there. The new CEO, actually, at Ventavia, Marty Anderson, is a clinical trial participant at Ventavia herself. And so are her sons. In and Pfizer's vaccine, vaccine trial, yes, yes. So, I mean, that, that's, that's happened all over. They were enrolling employees in the clinical trial. And so when I look at that, I always, and I guess this is... There's a huge conflict of interest. <clears throat> Absolutely. Did they get to pick which, which arm of the study they were in? Yeah. You know, in the, in the beginning, the mainstream media was responsible for putting so much fear in people of this virus and if if you get it you're gonna die and people were just so tuned into that so at that time i'm wondering you know did marty anderson and her sons get to choose the vaccine you know did they get to pick what they wanted to to receive in the study or maybe they knew there were dangers and risks that were too great for them and they picked the vaccine or the the placebo I don't know, but, it, but I know that they should not have been in the trial per Pfizer's own protocol. How they could have people involved in administering, deploying, and recording the trials, also participating and receiving financial benefit somewhere in the neighborhood of $10,000 per person. Is right. just... Yeah, and that's, that's purely an estimate. I don't want yeah, to get yeah. in trouble for saying that by some fact checker or somebody, but yeah, that and... <clears throat> You know, like I said, the, hey, the over there? chief executive officer, the okay, CEO's mother, was in charge of all, all right, the finances. You can, you can she was the only the one of the directors <laughs> that had access to the clinical trial budget and the clinical trial agreements. I was interested in seeing those. One, because, you know, that, that's what I did. I was a director of operations. I wasn't, you know, <clears throat> I helped with those two aspects of a clinical trial. And, and it helps when I'm managing the day-to-day -to, -day to know that, to know the what the budget looks like. So I know if there's something that needed to be built separately. So just their, their, their business process didn't make sense to me at all. So after I realized. Okay. I want to stop us right there because this part was absolutely stunning to have the executives and employees administering the trial, actually taking part in it and, you know, potentially unblinding themselves and picking which arm of the study. I, you know, I, I wouldn't put it past these guys for a second that that's exactly what they did. And I mean, if they decided, well, yeah, we'll, we'll make 10 grand, I'll be in the placebo group. And then I just get shot in the arm with nothing. And I get to decide later, which course I want to take once, you know, we've got the data. It just, it shows what a, what a just aggressive, scam this was and let me see if i can do this here
bear with me for one minute. I've got Brooke on the line with us, and I'm trying to find her window here. Um, shoot. May take just a second, Brooke. Um, our audience, bear with me. I, that one? Nope. Nope. Shoot. Uh, hold on. Let me try a different different one here. Uh, bear with me, guys, just for one second. Uh, there's the window. But I don't. Well, I'll do it another way. Oh, there it is right there, but it's just not showing up. Okay. I can always... Oh, wait. No, there it was. That's right. I have to put it in the right spot. And there she is. Hello, Brooke. How are you? Hello. I'm good. Y'all well, get my Sunday hair. Don't care. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome to the show. Um so you've been watching this like that was one of the most stunning things that you said to me or, or that, that came out of this interview that the employees themselves are taking part in the trial that they're administering and like how any regulatory agency we know from what you told us that the FDA has declined to investigate this. I mean, that's such a, a powerful allegation in my mind. It just it shows how. I, they just want to sweep this under the rug is what it seems like to me. What it seems like to me too, you know, I mean, this is, this has been going on for me now for a year and a half, you know, since September 25th of 2020, when I reported to the FDA, mm -hmm. nothing's happened. Yeah. So then Tavia, except that they've been awarded with more contracts and, you know, made millions of dollars at yeah. the expense of, you know, patient safety. Again, it, there's no, there's no regard. There's no regard for that. And um, you were talking about the CEO who I talked to, who I, who I shared with you guys that was participating in the clinical trial along with her children. So I get a tweet a, a few days ago from somebody. I don't know who it was. I just ignored it. But her question to me was, well, can you tell me what violation or what protocol violation um, this th didn't have anything to do with her coming onto the site because her employment started after her participation ended. Okay. So maybe that, maybe that's the case. And if I'm wrong guys, I'm, I'm okay with saying that. And that's actually why I'm joining uh, you guys tonight because in the New England Journal of Medicine paper that I looked at when I was noticing there was a missing site from the photo that I looked at with Ventavia, in in digging in the in the data a little more, I do find um, this physician's clinical trial site, but it's not the number that. I show still in another document, but until I get down and until I figure 
figure out what is going on with this extra and additional clinical trial site. Um, you know, I just wanted to make make that clear. 1041 may belong to Stephen Thomas as well, but his clinical trial sites I did find in the FOIA released, or excuse me, in the FDA released documents. Okay. Um, so I just I just wanted to clarify because I, I I really um, I think it's we, we have to get this right. Yes. You know. Um, and again, if I'm wrong, I don't mind saying that, and that that's part of why I feel really strongly about kind of why this has been going on for so long. Mm -hmm. And that's because I just, I think that, um, I think that whoever they are and whoever, um, you know, is involved in this and and the FDA really for, for, for sure realize that this has just gone for so gone on for so long. They can't, they can't backtrack now. You know, yes. I mean, they, they, how, how can you do that now that you've rolled you know, it out? You mentioned you know? that though, but I'm seeing the CEO of Moderna starting to make some sort of backpedaling comments as he's calling for a fourth booster as well. You know, the CDC, uh, Walensky is coming out and she's seeming very deflated and they're slowly starting to acknowledge, but I really think yeah. their strategy has been to push the, the idea that these heart attacks are commonplace that they happen all the time, uh, that um, everybody should get tested for HIV so that they can get a bunch of positive diagnosis from, uh, you know, false positives from low risk groups, which they haven't even quantized yet. And they want to find as many avenues for scapegoats to explain away what these vaccines are doing to people as they can come up with. And and like, we, we can't let them get away with this. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't know who else to tell. I've been trying to get our regulatory agencies involved, our, our government, um, involved, you know, and I've, I've been unsuccessful. I mean, I can't even, um, have an article in the British medical journal published without it being censored. You know, you're having problems with, with your video and, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know what else to do. Who yeah. else can I tell it to? Um, that that's partly why I decided, you know, after, and again, this, this data takes so long to go through because of the way that it's been released and you have to cross-reference this and cross-reference that. And that's okay. I, I'm, I'm willing to do that. I'm, I'm, I'm working full time on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think another way that I can help is, by helping people understand the clinical trial process and how data gets from the site level to the regulatory agencies that approve it. And I'm working with several groups on that all over, you know, the world. I'm, I'm, I'm helping people, um, speaking to them. I'm going to start tomorrow morning, bright and early, um, by going to Ventavia's clinic in Fort Worth and peacefully protesting people going going there to participate in clinical research. From what I've seen from the data from from, from the time that I was there mm-hmm. to very current information that, that I've been given, they're doing the same thing. And I'm so disappointed that more in my space have 
oh, y'all remember MySpace? Um, <laughs> but no, I'm kidding. But more in, in my industry have not come forward, especially mm-hmm. of Intavia, you know? I'm, what do you I'm want, just disappointed. What do you want to tell the people that you see coming in to either consider signing up for one of these uh, trials or continuing to participate in one of the trials? What would you say to them? I'm not sure yet. I've got all the posters okay. uh, and markers and things to make these signs. I don't know what I'm going to say yet. We're going to work on that here in a little bit. But I just, I think it's so important that people understand that it's not necessarily the clinical trial because there are great studies out there, even ones that, that are being done by Pfizer. You know, there are, science is amazing and clinical trials are, um, are useful for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. You know, rare disease, which is, is where I was, you know, working after I was fired from Ventavia for a few months, but they're useful and they've just been crapped on. And it's, it's, um, I, I don't want people to think, you know, that all, all clinical trials are this way because they're not, this is the first time in my 20 years that I've ever seen anything like that. And, you know, were they sloppy? Sure. Yes. But the uh, the just the level of of purposeful cover up, yes. hiding of fraudulent and and falsified, fabricated data, not reporting the things that I've been talking about for so long, are just unimaginable. I've never seen it before. So I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't know what I'm going to say on my signs yet, but. I just think that it that it has to be known that Ventavia is still doing the same thing. Okay. Have they made positive changes? I think so. I think so. You know, you asked the question like, or you make the statement, I don't know what to do. What do we do from here? And I want to point you to, in the audience as well, to one of my favorite books. It's Bury the Chains by Adam Horthchild. It's about... Uh, how slavery was ended in the Great British Empire. And so as Americans, we have this perspective of, well, that we fought the Civil War and uh, half a million people died. And that's how you change things, right? But what they don't know is that slavery was brought to an end by Quakers in the British Empire. And the way they did that was by like building models of the slave ships. And they would go tirelessly from town meeting to town meeting, riding on horseback to spread the word and educate people. They showed them, you know, the trade, they showed them the conditions. They got people to write testimonials. Eventually they had former slaves come in and speak to these people. And they were running into like the same problem. Uh, It was the Caribbean that was really like the slaughterhouse. They brought in, I think it was 700,000 slaves to the Caribbean. When slavery was ended, there were like 200 and something, 240,000 that were alive. So two thirds of the slaves that went were sent to the Caribbean died because of, you know, they're swinging machetes and sharp sugar cane fields and, and heat without all the medicines and so forth. So it was the politicians who ran the governments and so forth 
that were remote owners in these sugar plane, uh, sugar cane plantations. So they had every financial incentive to keep the current system going. And it was Quakers who just kept pushing and kept pushing and kept educating people and bringing them the truth and telling them, telling people their stories. And that's what you're doing. That's what the vaccine injured are doing. That's what I'm trying to do with this show. This is how we do it. It's not easy. It's not going to happen overnight, but it's going to come from our constant vigilance and, uh, you know, willing to be wrong. And just like, you know, you're talking about with the trial site data and so forth, we want to get mm-hmm. to the truth because that's, I, I think that will tell itself. Like once people see what we see, understand what we understand about the way some of these things are run, what's really happening, what the real side effects are, the way the early treatments were um, attacked and ridiculed and so forth so that they could push the emergency use authorization and on and on. It, it really just shows how corrupt the systems become. And I think people can't help but start to reject that and change will naturally come about as a result. We just have to reach critical mass. Not an easy answer to hear, I know. No. <laughs> It'd be nice if there was a white knight to come in and save us, but uh, <laughs> it doesn't work that way always in the real world. So. Okay. Yeah. It's frustrating for sure. Yeah, it is. But I think what you're doing is absolutely tremendous with all the research and the people that you're networking with behind the scenes. I connected you up with a, a biologist person. I think y'all chatted for a couple hours today. Uh, she's going to come on the show she's lovely. As, as well. And uh, yeah, very knowledgeable and uh, is going to help us. I'm going to start talking about some of the effective treatments and things for some of these conditions, because like, I, I feel like that's another thing that's missing. We still have doctors who are like refusing to acknowledge the, the vaccines are causing some of these injuries. So they're going, you know, I hear the story time and time again where somebody's vaccine injured, they have some condition developed, they go to the hospital, the hospital runs all the tests, all the tests come back negative because they're not looking, you know, the vaccine is clearly not the cause. So they don't get a diagnosis. They're told they're, they're stressed, they have psychological, mental issues, you're going crazy, something like that, and go home, we can't help you. In, in her case, she was actually fired by the her doctor and they canceled all of her appointments yeah. and said, go somewhere yeah. else. I mean, what's happening <laughs> today is just, it's so shocking and it's it's across the board at every touch point in this process. And, you know, you brought a lot of light to, and we're going to go through the rest of this video here, but you brought a lot of light to like how these trials were, were conducted and... Um, it's it's so important for people to get yeah and again i think that you know super important for people to understand that you know the sites collect the data Mm -hmm. you know and you kind of you kind of touched on this um, earlier the sites collect the data the data gets put into a system a database Uh, we call it electronic uh, data capture system Mm -hmm. and before it gets to the fda the cleaning process takes place between you know, the pharmaceutical company, their contract research organization, and the site. And then it goes to the FDA. So the FDA will never 
see what's what's actually collected from the site level unless they actually go in for an inspection. Yeah. And so, and the, the doctors who were saying holding, you know, waving a flag and saying, hold on here, we've got problems, were silenced, were attacked, were deplatformed, stripped of their license. I, I mean it's just sure. I, I I feel like we're in the midst of a of a holocaust uh, here with what they're pushing, and people mm-hmm. are going to look back on this and just be like, "Wow, how did they not see?" Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for allowing me to to come on and at least clarify that one part. I'd totally forgotten that that we talked about that. I was super excited. Well, not excited, but you know that that I found that hundred and fifty fourth site, which may or may not turn out to belong to um, Dr. Thomas, but okay. you know, there is that discrepancy. And, so what, and do you think the, that, what do you think having found this, what do you think the issue might be? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I, I really don't. I, you know, when I first found the picture and noted that there were 154 sites on this award that went to Ventavia from Pfizer. And when I went to one document that, was foiled, and I don't see Dr. Thomas site there, but then on an FDA release, I do see his site there. There's still 153 sites in some documents. There's more in others and Thomas listed in some and not others. And I think that's part of, you know, partly the, the problem is, is, how these documents are being released, you know, in the time and, and, um, you know, that, that FDA asked for, and luckily, you know, uh, judge Pittman said, no, you have to release it this time, but you know, it's, it's difficult to piece together. It this is large on the clinical trial and, you know, the emergency use authorizations and how they hold on. I'm going to plug in my computer. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> And I, you know, I'm really grateful that we have people like you. Yeah, go ahead uh, uh, to, um, you know, like break this down and start to make sense of it. I, I know Jinky has. You've been help. He wrote me, and uh, I mentioned that I had talked to you, and he wrote me and said, "Yeah, she is really helping us kind of put some of the pieces together because, not uh, you know, as smart as the mouse is, and he knows what he knows. He's not privy to what's happening at all of the trial sites and how some yeah, of these things. Yeah, and that's are you know that's the unique perspective. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. I mm-hmm. have to you know sometimes I'll hear him say a word, and I have to go like straight to the dictionary and look it up to see what it means. But I am an expert on clinical trials and how they're supposed to run, and you know in the regulatory process. This this study wouldn't you know wouldn't um, hold muster. There, there's just so many problems. Yeah, and you know I hope to my hope is to bring bring light from you know the the site perspective. Mm-hmm. And I've spent hours, probably days, speaking to uh, different scientists and and different groups that are trying to understand or just had no clue really how how data was collected and our industry is, you know, obviously not, not regulated. Um, well, I, I would say it was probably manipulated to that end to allow them to, you know, over time, 
sending people back and forth between the regulators and the, the pharmaceutical uh, companies that's created an environment where like they're writing their own regulations in a lot of ways. And they're, they, they're doing that to be able to get away with these things. And it's gotten to the point where they can literally, it seems make the data, anything that they want and, and get away with it. Well, you, you certainly can, you can, they can, they, they did that. Mm -hmm. And any, any company can do that with their data. Any one of them can. And the FDA would never know. Yeah. Unless there was an inspection on site and they saw something that was in the patient's chart that was different from what was reported in the case report form. Yeah. And you can see in the case report forms that were released from back in December to the most recent release, March 1st. Excuse me. March 1st, that if you look at the audit history and you look at the audit trail on pick a patient, doesn't it doesn't matter, you know, you should be able to follow that patient's story, that you should be able to to um, know how this patient um, enrolled, what day he enrolled, when his vaccines were, when um, his participation ended, any changes should be on this audit trail and, and they are, but some, some are, are that just, I swear to you guys, I say it all the time. Something shocks me every single day. Yeah. And when you read the, the audit trail on some of these participants where data managers are asking the site to change certain diagnoses and mm-hmm. You like I like you mentioned earlier. I found that one of the owners of the company was changing medical history on one of the patients in the trial that died. You know, why? Why is Pfizer is allowing this to happen? He's not on the delegation log. Pfizer had the delegation log. Why did they give him access to something that he wasn't delegated a responsibility for? Yeah, and that's why ultimately, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, Ventavia did what they did, and they, there needs to be some accountability. Mm-hmm. But Pfizer is ultimately responsible for the conduct of the clinical trial, no matter who they contracted to. Yeah, and you know, we mentioned Manny DeGray as one example of how they're doing this data cleaning. You know, I listened to mm-hmm. the call that they recorded with their doctor, who was assigned to her case after she had the vaccine injury, and sat there and listened to them tell these parents that. Uh, this was just a random coincidence and it had nothing to do with the vaccine despite coming on hours after her getting the shot. And it's just, it's so despicable to watch them engage in this Mm -hmm. behavior and know that they're protected and they're getting away with it because they have the government behind it, because they've co-opted the government, really. Yeah, but if you look at, if you look at the clinical trial protocol, Mm -hmm. You know, it's 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 a guide that you have to follow. Any deviation from that protocol has to be documented. Number one, mm-hmm. and number two, it it potentially has to be reported to the institutional review board or the IRB. Um, so when I'm looking at this protocol and I, I'm reading it and I reference it, I have to reference it all the time. But it, it talks about causality. You know, if there's an adverse event, a serious adverse event, the principal investigator or the main study doctor, there's 
the main study doctor, and then there's typically a backup. Uh, we call them sub-investigators. Okay. They have to assess causality. And is this adverse event or serious adverse event related to their treatment? So is it related to the injection mm-hmm. of this product? And there's options. There's related, not related, possibly related, probably. And I, I'd have to go back and, and look exactly at, at the protocol again to, um, to, to make sure I'm saying it correctly, how, how, how it's defined in this particular protocol, because it, it varies. But, you know, and, and, and what I'm looking at, there's so many times when I'm reading through a narrative of a hospitalization and I get down to the assessment of causality and it's just a straight up, this patient was injected. He received the active product, not the placebo, mm-hmm. had a reaction and it's not related. How about possibly? Yeah. How about probably? Yeah. But no, I mean, there, there's just so many that, I, that I'm looking at. And these, these assessments are made by the principal investigator. And then sometimes, you know, um, there will be a conversation with Pfizer about, you know, kind of like an adjudication. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's very scary what I'm reading. Rochelle Lewinsky came out and when she was at that university and giving the speech in front of a bunch of students, she bragged about how great their data is now and how they've got vaccination records, they've got death records and they've got hospitalization records or, um, case case records as well. So, and they've collated all this together and tied it all together. So they have a good picture of what's happening. And yet you have, you know, like Dell big tree and the high wire and Aaron Siri and so forth. Suing them trying to get the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated, which she just acknowledged they've got those records and they are, they are just being stonewalled. I mean, that was a meeting set up with Trump uh, by Trump when he was president where uh, him and and Robert Kennedy Jr. and somebody else sat down with Fauci and Barrick and some of the others, and that was what they asked for. When can we see vaccinated versus unvaccinated data? Uh, We want to compare it, you know, and they just, they are refusing to provide it because I think it would be so damaging to the little empire that they've built with tens of billions of dollars and, government money, government handouts that they get to funnel into them and their cronies. Yeah. (laughs) Lots to take in there. I know, but it's just, it's such a corrupted system and people need to understand this is what's being done. I think in the name of science and it's, and, and I, I like that you're also bringing out the point that, well, it can't science is valuable you know, some of these things are helping people with rare diseases and so forth. And there is a way to do it right and minimize some of these problems, but that's not what's happening in today's environment. And I think to me, I I go to, well, it's because the, the design of this system with the regulators and so forth has just become so untenable that it's, I don't know if it's fixable. I don't know. 
Yeah, I don't know either. I don't know. But thanks again for for just letting me clarify, especially that, that one point, you know, that, that was meant to in no way discredit or, or you know, um, disrespect the NEJM, you know. Um, but, you know, I found something. I still have that something that I'm looking into. But I just wanted to clarify because, again, I forgot that you and I had spoken about that. And, um, yeah, so th- thanks for letting me come on and, and explain that. Thank you. And appreciate all of the work that you're doing behind the scenes. You with too. To, <laughs> to help. So have a yeah. lovely night. Well, I can stick around if you want me to, or if, if you want, um, anybody has any questions, I'm happy. I'm happy to answer those. Yeah, I can play the video. Let me uh, open that up to chat. If anybody in chat, or if somebody wants to come on Spaces and ask Brooke a question, uh, request to speak, and I'll bring you in, and we'll play the video and give a couple minutes for questions and stuff to come in, and then I'll come back and ask you those. Okay. that the FDA wasn't going to take any action against Ventavia. I, with the help of a group of attorneys, <clears throat> filed a False Claims Act case. When I filed the False Claims Act case, it immediately, by order of the court, went under seal, meaning that no, that I couldn't talk about, I couldn't talk about the lawsuit. The original <clears throat> filing, again, that was in January of 21, the government had an initial 60 days to investigate the allegations that I made. Mm-hmm. Never did. Never did. What they did do was request seal extension after seal extension after seal extension without ever investigating, not one time going to Ventavia's clinical trial sites, even after I gave them additional information on other studies that they were participating in, including Moderna and Novavax and J&J and, you know, these vaccines in our youth and in our pregnant women and how they were targeting minorities. So they had every piece of information that I just handed to them, you know, and it wasn't until, well, in January of 2022, a full year later, over a year, they they decided to decline intervention, which means they weren't going to help me investigate the, the claims. So this is in regards to your complaint that you filed that they kept extending the seal, meaning we want to keep this under wraps and not let yes. this be accessible to FOIA requests. A year later, mm-hmm. they're not going to look at it. They're not going to look at it. No, they haven't looked at it. And I don't ever anticipate them, them doing that. Um, they declined to intervene in the case meaning I have an opportunity to move forward with a case on my own. In January of 2022, in February, they finally unsealed it. So the court documents, some of them, not all of them, none that you will ever be able to FOIA either. They will remain under seal. I don't even know what those are. You know, I'm sure there's been some, you know. Are these documents that they collected no, these would these would probably be inner inner you know um, agency. Mm-hmm. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, I don't even know what they are. There are some documents that remain under seal that I'm not a, I'm not aware of what they are. So in February it became unsealed, and at that point I decided to take the case on myself. So we filed 
the same action, just without knowing that the government's going to help me do it. And that's where most of the cases tend to be successful, is if you have the backing of the government. But at this point, I don't want their help. You know? Yeah. Um, I don't want them helping because they're hiding. They seem complicit. <clears throat> exactly. They are complicit. I have no doubt. I'm Come after me if you want to say that. Um, it doesn't matter. I am 100% certain that they are complicit. Otherwise, why wouldn't they investigate? Why did they allow Pfizer to continue enrolling patients in these studies and, and different age groups? And you have information in your hand that shows willful misconduct, fraud in a clinical trial. The vaccine is misbranded and it needs to come off the market immediately. But I'm moving forward with a lawsuit I, that, that's been filed. The defendants, Ventavia, Icon, and Pfizer have all been served. And the dollar amount on that lawsuit is $2 billion. Billion dollars, <clears throat> which doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the vaccine injured. And that's exactly where that money's going to go if I'm successful. I never met anyone in the clinical trial at Ventavia personally that was injured, but you know, these, there, there are people, they have voices and they are being heard finally. So, you know, death has been reported. There's so many, I, I can't even begin to count. Yeah, I, I mean, you follow some of the same accounts that I do on Twitter mm -hmm. and this, the spike protein that they're inducing the body to produce seems to just attack all yes it seems to trigger all the signs of aging all of the markers of aging and it's disrupting the immune system the cdc told us that it doesn't change dna and now we've got studies coming out that shows six hours later it's changed it's reverse, reverse transcribed yeah. into the liver cells and <clears throat> it's like where does this that's interesting end? that that you that you bring up the liver because in one of my cases uh Ventavia's clinical trial sites, there was a female patient that was originally randomized to receive placebo and at some point became unblinded and eligible to be vaccinated. So she got dose, which would have been dose three and four because her first was placebo, her second was placebo. Dose one received dose two and shortly after dose two becomes ill. <clears throat> and that's why these Case, um, case report forms that have been released that are individual documents, documents of the patient's story in the trial are not matching what are on the, the site level documents because I have some of those documents and I know that they don't match and I handed those over. So again, there's your, there's your evidence there, but um, in looking at this patient, she gets ill, she's hospitalized, becomes septic and has a diagnosis of hepatocellular injury. Well, in the case report form, and I just started looking at this recently, and then I, I, I feel like I get sidetracked a lot, but there's a, a, a audit trail where, again, the diagnosis is, they're, they're being asked to change the diagnosis. By Pfizer. Yes. Wow. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. like Brooke, I so just I'm seeing, I'm seeing back it, in there. Um, hold on, let me get to the right. There we go. That one is one of the more 
disturbing ones for me where they're like literally going back and trying to change the diagnosis. I mean, Oh, let me show you. Let me show you something right here. Okay. Like what's the, from the industry perspective, before you do that, what's Mm -hmm. like the, um, rationale that they would say, if you question, why are you doing this? Well, there's no reason to okay. be a data, a data manager and and see the narrative or have the medical record of a patient who was diagnosed with something by the hospital. And for the site to capture that diagnosis and for you to ask them to change it to something different, it's unacceptable. Mm-hmm. There's, there's absolutely no reason. And I see it in, um, this is just one patient. Okay. I don't know if y'all can see that, but this is one patient. And this is the way that I love to look through, um, through a, a, a patient's journey through the trial is to print every single one of the documents out that, um, were finalized. So they're completed by, you know, completed by Pfizer. This is what the FDA looked at. You know, this one's 300 and I think 64 pages mm-hmm. and it's, it's, it's an interesting case to me. And I still, you know, we're still not finished looking at it um, because they're changing medical history. This is one of the owner's husbands who is changing medical history on this patient. And maybe it's significant, maybe it's not, but yeah. a, an original medical history was entered as cough just a regular like that was that's an icd-10 code cough that cough gets changed to i believe it was non-essential cough and so the data managers come back and they say well why did and they're asking ventavia why did you change his, his diagnosis of cough to non-essential cough if there's no record that no record of that in his in his history and so no explanation as to why they're doing this but then that non-essential cough gets changed to I believe a non-essential uh, or no excuse me it was changed to an intermittent non-productive cough so they're making what you're describing they're making multiple passes at this chipping away at the diagnosis a little bit to water it down with each pass until we're end up with something that's innocuous and not going to be reported yeah i don't i don't i don't know why but it, it it's you know again this goes back why is somebody that's not delegated responsibility doing this Mm-hmm. Um, why are you changing a medical history that's documented as cough? There's an ICD-10 for cough, and then it doesn't. Somebody doesn't like it. Again, there's there's very little information in these forms, but he changes it to non-essential cough, and then it's changed to intermittent non-productive cough. And to look at his his. Um, you know, a serious adverse event, you know, this patient died of pneumonia. Mm-hmm. 
and he was tested in hospital for COVID-19 and was negative. And there's an entry by the study manager or the uh, data managers asking the clinical trial site to change his diagnosis from pneumonia to a COVID-19 related pneumonia. Mm, I see. Well, and you know, he was discharged from the hospital with a diagnosis of pneumonia tested for COVID was negative, And the data managers asked the site to change his diagnosis to COVID-19 related pneumonia. Wow. So they can, now, does that have something to do with the change in his medical history? So that, Maybe, I mean, I don't know. I I want to jump in there real quick because looking at what Jinky and like Walter Chestnut and sort of the rabbit hole that they've been going down in looking for this kind of theory of everything to, to explain the primary mechanism that's causing all of these, you know, like wildly varying symptoms that we're seeing from both COVID and the, the vaccine injured. Um, they really seem to be narrowing down on it's a fibrotic disease where uh, these spikes either attached to the antibodies or not are going in and creating scarring tissue throughout the vascular system. And this is causing a lot of these kinds of different problems and so forth. So to me, you know, it, putting that, that hat on and thinking, looking at it through those rose colored glasses anyway, it's like they know that that's what happened, that this is a vaccine-injured person who had significant scarring in the lungs, weakened his immune system, and left him unable to uh, you know, fight off infection. And they want to instead tag it to the virus, which is something, well, okay, so the vaccine failed, but uh, it was COVID that got him. Or, you know, it's just, that seems like to me that's what they're trying to do here. You're looking through papers and like, what are you thinking? Yeah. I mean, cause it's every day, like it's every day I find something. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm, um, again, I'm not a medical doctor, but you know, I've, I've, I've worked doing this, especially, mm-hmm. you know, on the site level and being a research coordinator, I was a transplant coordinator, um, research coordinator for, um, liver and kidney. So, I mean, I'm used to looking through, you know, and looking through this kind of stuff. And when I see, when I see data managers asking site to change diagnosis on, you know, case report forms, it's just not right. It's a huge red flag. (laughs) And I, you know, I mean, somebody on the regulatory level has, has to understand, you know, which, um, you know, in what way is that illegal? It's illegal. It's fraud. Yeah, absolutely. So I've got a few comments here. Crypto Crank wants to let you know that you're helping more people than you maybe realize. Mm-hmm. Keep it up, both you and me. Um, uh, Huntington is saying here, I don't, I don't have any confidence in the, that the judicial system will ever do anything about this. I think you probably feel similar about that. you talk about here later on in the interview how it's really shaken your trust in governments in hospitals in the medical establishment really do you want to add to that i mean i think i think this situation has done that for a lot of people Mm -hmm. you know i mean with a way that that 
the governments or whoever this they is are able to change rules on social media platforms and choose who they want to silence. And, you know, it's like, I don't know. I do. I just, I've lost so much faith in the regulatory agency that, that governs my industry. I never imagined that, that this would be possible um, I'm not so naive to think that, you know, jump doesn't happen, but never, never imagined that it would happen. Um, are you, Brooke, at, at are you aware of the 1984 law, you know, perfect year for this thing to pass? It's in the federal register. It's real. I've looked it up. Uh, Tim Truth sent it to me. He's another podcaster that requires the CDC to lie about vaccine effectiveness, even if it's negative. Have you seen that? You haven't? Okay. I'm going to find that and send it to you. Malone found, Robert Malone found it and he tweeted it out. It's real. It's in the federal register. I can, you know, show you the page number and everything else. I'll have to go find the tweet. But uh, I, I was shocked by that. So they are literally required by law to lie to us and push these vaccines, even if they're not safe. I mean, the language is that clear about it. So <laughs> I don't even know what to say. Yeah. Yeah. Sam, thanks for ruining my night. <laughs> I'm kidding. All right. Back to the video. <laughs> you know, repeatedly come up in the documents that I'm looking at that they are doing exactly what my industry knows as data cleaning. And I'm, I've, I've, sent a tweet out today asking for people in my industry to speak up because I'm not the only regional director. I'm not the only clinical trial professional that worked on this vaccine study where there were problems. You know, I'm sure of it. All the employees at Ventavia should come forward. All the clinical research associates with ICON should come forward. And certainly anybody within Pfizer that has any information needs to come forward. It's time for like backup, you know? I mean, we, I know what went on in Pfizer's study was fraud. Pfizer knows what went on in their own study was fraudulent, and so does our United States government. And I've been approached by many, many groups and other regulatory bodies, and I'm happy to, to say that, you know, I've, I've signed an affidavit for, with other countries in helping them pursue getting this vaccine off the market immediately. And the, the fact is, Pfizer is still pushing to not only go after younger and younger age groups, but they want infants to be injected with this so that they can get it included in the recommended schedule, which just generates mm-hmm. perpetual income <clears throat> for Pfizer. Sure, sure. I can't imagine that happening. Why is that? I mean, I, I'm sure it will, but... I just, because I know that, that babies are going to be injured and I know that babies are going to die. And I can't imagine that. <laughs> you know, it's going to happen. It's something new every single day. I'm, I'm not just saying that. Every day I find something. Like today I found 
Um, Olivia's husband, changing medical history on one of my patients. You should see my office, it looked like a tornado blew up in there. <laughs> but I mean, I'm going through these, this data and it takes so long. You know, it's not in order. The CRFs, the case report forms, are not in any particular order. You mentioned this to me. It's mm -hmm. like they mm -hmm. rearranged the order to make it difficult. I don't know if they did that. Like, I just... And Brooke, that's kind of like the, that big stack of papers that you're holding up. Those are all the different yeah. records that you had to assemble yeah. to tell the story of, here's the patient's trial experience, right? Yes. Okay, okay. I can't imagine them. Do, maybe I can. I don't know. I don't know what I know anymore. But maybe that's just the way they're printed. I, who the hell knows? But you have to, you know, like page 394 will be associated to page 210. And you, you just have to, I have to correlate them. That's how I get through that. Mm -hmm. I'm old school on paper person. I'm not a scientist. You know, I'm not a doctor. So while I'm very familiar with different disease process, GI, hepatology, vaccines, kind of my specialty. I know how to read what I'm reading. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't like to interpret data and percentages and things like that, or people smarter out there than me, and that's their job, you know, these, <clears throat> these scientists and such. And, and that's why I've been working with them every day. You know, certain groups that, you know, we, we talk and go through this data, and it just doesn't it doesn't make sense so if people want to join you in that effort help you have a website i do it's it's i am brooke jackson um a funny story how that came about when i first started using twitter which wasn't that long ago and somebody replied to me and said who is brooke jackson and my husband was was reading these texts with me and he goes well you are <laughs> you're brooke jackson it was just kind of like a little silly thing and he goes that that should be your handle uh, I am Brooke Jackson, so that's where that, that came from, a little silly, little silly story, but Twitter's been um, an interesting place. It's a way to get information out there that's important that you won't see on mainstream media. Right. You're not going to see it on Fox or, you know, this other, that other CNN or, you know, and sometimes even on the independent ones, like, you know, no information. I'm not the only whistleblower. There's others out there. I don't like being called the Pfizer whistleblower. You know, I'm talking about clinical trials in general. There's a focus on Pfizer, but I'm seeing things in RSV studies at Ventavia. I'm seeing things in other vaccine candidates like Moderna and Novavax and all these. And, and I'm like, why does nobody hear me? I don't understand why. I mean, I do, <laughs> but it's still just kind of one of those things that kind of shocks the hell out of you. Yeah. You know, that you have all this data, and that's what kind of makes me paranoid. The, you know, the people in charge of protecting us are almost mm -hmm. captured by the drug companies they're supposed to be regulating. Yeah. And the simple fact is, there's tens of billions of dollars being made off of this process, and that yeah. Uh, yeah. buys a lot of influence. Certainly does. Yeah. And Pfizer will tell you on, the, or excuse me, the, um, FDA will tell you on their own website that we rely on the data from the sponsors to determine whether a drug should be approved or not. They tell you on their website. That's their process. So, again, 
I think what I'm calling for is that there has to be a change in that process. You know, they can't, regulatory authorities can't get involved at the end after the big pharma company has an opportunity to manipulate the data. You know, if, if the FDA wants to know what the true Pfizer data looks like, then they need to go to every single one of the clinical trial sites because it'll look way different. And I, and I would even argue that that data should be publicized, especially <coughs> with the mRNA vaccines because they were publicly Absolutely. funded in the first place. Some, you know, yes, yep. Moderna's publicly funded. I've given my attorney information on that. They, um, I'm not filing another false claim in that case because it's not going to go anywhere and it's very stressful to go through that process. But there's a case out there for somebody to take on and I'll happily give them the data. You know, this Moderna vaccine is, in terms of the data from Ventavia, if they're going to approve it, then they're approving it based on fraudulent data because Moderna's using it. Moderna's using Ventavia's data and it's fraudulent. You were saying, you know, that, that the site level data should be something that's made available. I 100% agree. And why everything, you know, while everything is moving more electronically for the sites and even for the sites that do things on paper still and even the ones that do it, you know, man or electronically, why not send that document that the site collects right along with your data that you're submitting to the FDA in, in the form of an electronic data capture form. So that people could trace yeah. the process of it's super. It would be super easy. Here's what we did yeah. to collate it and present it, yes. but you have the source. Yep. Okay. And you know, the argument that I've heard from some of the scientists on Twitter who are looking so through like this Jinky data some of the others. is this is a new technology. The people within the FDA approving this, they have very much a check off the boxes and they use the process for a vaccine versus a gene therapy, which is mm -hmm. seemingly a huge mistake. Yes. And, and the argument that they're making is these people aren't smart enough to understand all the implications of what this data means, what they're approving, and that's why it needs to be public. How scary is that? Hmm? How scary is that? Yeah, it is. You know? Yeah. It is. It just shows that. It's, you know, it's extremely scary. Oh, hold on. Let me fix this window here. I wasn't expecting to use this display. There we go. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't want to hear that, that doctors and scientists that are, that are reviewing clinical trial data are, aren't smart enough to understand what they're looking at. Well, and what he's saying there is, yeah, I think that's in the context of all the effects on the immune system, the toll-like receptors, right. the P53, the BRCA, all the stuff these studies are coming right. out and, and showing, and like the read-through risk and some of these other concerns that these guys have identified and raised. They're like, look, these guys, unless they're really experts in doing this stuff, they're not going to know what questions to even ask. And now I've got up here on the screen beside you, this is, um, has just come out from Zero Hedge, or no, who is this, from Epoch Times, or Epic Times. Uh, children in, in China diagnosed with leukemia after taking the Chinese vaccinations. And I, I just, I think we're going to see so much of this 
because they really took something that is wildly experimental and just unleashed it on on all of us and let's hope for the best and you know they like to brag about their 20 years of research in mrna tech but it just has ended in one disaster after another i can't see i turned 40 and i lost my oh vision. yeah yeah <laughs> welcome to the club <laughs> but it's just I, i'm not even going to read through most of it here but it was um it's just something that oh right there that's just come out after receiving her first dose of the COVID-19 Lee Young's four-year-old developed a fever and coughs, which quickly subsided after intravenous therapy at a hospital. But after the second shot, the father could tell something was wrong. Swelling appeared around the daughter's eyes and did not go away for weeks. The girl complained about pain in her legs. Those are likely blood clots. Somebody wanted in the chat was asking, what's your opinion on the blood clots that are happening? Do you want to, mm. you kind of stay away from the medical side of it and focus more on the clinical data. So I'm guessing you may not want to answer that one. I do because I, I, I mean, I have an opinion about it and that, that, that opinion is mine. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't, I don't like to talk about, you know, the medical side of stuff because I, I'm not a doctor, you okay. know, when Fair my enough. friends or my family ask me for advice on whether or not they should even get, you know, injected with this product. I don't, I'm not in a position that's, that's way beyond my scope. And I just don't feel comfortable answering that question. And that's, that's for my, my own, my own friends and family, you know, and, and kind of, it's like a, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't, yes. um, you know, my, my to... suggestion would for them would be to go to your family doctor or, mm -hmm. you know, whoever, whoever you see for, you know, your, your own healthcare, but a lot of them don't trust them anymore. Right. And that's what's Or what's the doctors just refuse to really like consider the vaccine as being at cause here because yeah. they've administered so many of them. And now they're like, holy shit, I better not be wrong because this would, you know, be really bad for me. How many people did I advise to get this thing? And so like, they're fighting their own cognitive dissonance at the same time, all of the pressure and so forth to that's been applied to the people who do speak out. It, it's gotta be, you know, and a lot of them are saddled with six figure medical school debt and so forth. So like if they get fired, what do they do with that? How does that work out? It's just, it's a nightmare situation. And I think it to, in my mind as a Quaker, as an anarchist, I think about it uh, in terms of we've got to decentralize further. We've got to get away from this practice of medicine that only this one government-granted monopoly is able to authorize. And we need competing ideologies, competing um, methods of treatment and um, of just perspective on health and the body and so forth so that we can't get this kind of runaway situation where everyone's coerced into taking this solution. That's going to make their friends tens of billions of dollars. Yeah. Yeah. I just sent you a leak, Sam yep. to a Fox news article. It was a Houston, Texas. I think I read um, that recently. Yeah. Yes. It was from a year ago, but what this lady says, and it's only a couple of minutes, I don't know if you have time to play it, but this is one sure. of the principal investigators of Pfizer's uh, vaccine, the COVID-19 vaccine in, in children 
give me. I don't know why this this principal investigator, this study doctor, just seems so. Is it a video or is it just? Yeah, it's a video. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. See the play button there. Oh, right there. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Fox 26 is getting a look at the research facility and team conducting COVID-19 vaccine trials on Houston children as young as six months old. Our Maria Salazar live with us after speaking with a parent who we understand is signing up her toddler. That's right, Kaylin. And this mother says that for her, it was an easy choice because she wants her son to be protected from the virus and also because of what she feels she already knows about the vaccines. I also spoke to the principal investigator of the trial site. She says she is the one who will determine which kids are healthy enough to participate in the trial and what steps to take if there are any problems. Whenever I heard the news that they were doing trials on young children, I immediately called Dr. Garg to find out if he could be enrolled in the trial. Carolyn Scherer hopes her 18-month-old Clark will be able to participate in a... These just, uh, they break my heart to sit here and watch these because I understand what they're doing to these kids. And like the, the risk they face is a statistical zero. And it's like these parents are under this mass formation and they've been isolated and the fear has been amped up and propagandized and constantly hit with this mainstream media narrative. Most of them think if you're unvaccinated, you're just, uh, you, you're going to drop dead any moment when that just flies in the face of the data. It's so irrational. And like, there's this 30% of them that it doesn't matter what you show them, what you say to them, they're going down with the ship. And it's like this, this little kid doesn't deserve, she didn't deserve this. And this kid doesn't deserve it either. You want me to play the rest or you want to? Yeah, it's actually pretty interesting. Okay. COVID-19 vaccine trial, one that Dr. Renu Garg, a Houston pediatrician is overseeing. The messenger RNA technology is superb. She's what? working with Ventavia Research Group as the principal investigator. So I'm responsible um, for agreeing to vaccinate the child and to help deal with the consequences if there is a problem. You must be a big believer in the vaccine because that sounds like a huge responsibility. I am an absolute believer. I was the first vaccine recipient with Ventavia. <laughs> Ventavia Research Group gave us a look inside their lab in the Greater Heights. They've already conducted COVID-19 vaccine trials in Wait. adults and teens. So is this one of your co-workers or is this somebody who was in the trial and then went to work like your replacement? No. So this was this is a principal investigator Okay. at a site in Houston that okay. is that is uh, that's managed by Ventavia. Okay. She's. Um, yeah, she's, she was not, she, she was a principal investigator. Sorry. In the coming weeks, they'll expand to children as young as six months. The study is FDA approved and the study is FDA monitored. He said, no, 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 no. It is not FDA approved. It is, uh, it's under emergency use still. 
Martinez is the team lead for the trial. She says once Dr. Garg clears a child to get the vaccine, she and her team will schedule the vaccines and regular lab work for the participants, including nasal swabs. Monitor the participants. We have access to this diary 24 hours. We have a coordinator on call uh, who is reviewing this. And input the data that will be sent to the pharmaceutical company and ultimately the FDA. There is no shot that we can give an adult that we cannot give to a child. If it's safe for an adult, it's safe for a child. Dr. Garg oh says God, the more than 130 so million doses of the vaccines administered in the U.S., along with trial data from thousands of participants, is more than reassuring. Schurer agrees. The children are not guinea pigs. It's not like we have no information at all. There's a lot of information that indicates that these vaccines are going to be safe and that they're going to be effective. So again, these trials are yeah, supposed to get underway. So in the sad to me is like she believes she's doing the right thing for her kid, but is just yeah. We've had we've had this silencing of vo the voices of concern that are turning out again and again to be correct and you know the objections that they were raising and it's yeah. like they're still pushing ahead with this it's just it boggles the mind like i i look at it and i'm i'm like you a lot of days how is this happening yeah. what do we do about it um what is wrong with this planet yeah. but you heard her she says they're superb the second thing that caught my attention was that principal investigator with fentavia out of houston is saying that she was the first than Talia recipient. Participant, yeah. Conflict of interest much? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so they just just admitted it right there and don't even Yeah. Like don't even comprehend you've just acknowledged that's like a violation of federal law, I would assume. It's a violation of the protocol if she was you know, I mean, I guess it would depend. I don't know what, what, um, arm or what, you know, what study she participated was in. Okay. Um, no, I, she was participating in or overseeing the clinical trial in, in, um, I believe five to 11 year olds. Okay. But I don't know if she was also a sub investigator because I haven't seen the delegation log, if she was also a sub-investigator on the adult study and participated in that, it's not clear. Um, you know, or maybe maybe she just spoke and, and I'm misunderstanding. This kind of, you know, speaks to the CEO of the company now who was a clinical trial participant herself, yeah. as, you know, as were her sons. Um, you know, well, maybe she enrolled or started working for Ventavia after she was enrolled. That's certainly a possibility. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean that there's not still a conflict of interest there. And yeah. I probably, you know, <laughs> should have dropped out it's of just the trial. Like, if that was blows the, my mind. Yeah. Yeah. Huh, unbelievable. Okay. Um, let's get back to your video. We're almost done here. We got a few minutes left. They are, they have, push this thing onto hundreds of millions of people blindly, and we're gonna find out how it works out. Not just pushed it out there and said, we, we believe that this is safe and effective, which we've proven 
otherwise. Otherwise, but we're, now we're gonna we're gonna mandate that you take this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I I can't ever imagine things being the same again. Some good, right? I think this a lot of change, a lot of good change is gonna come, but a lot of bad too. Yeah. And and trust has been broken, and that's something I have a hard time giving back and. I think millions of people will too. I think so too, yeah. We're seeing vaccination rates, not even for mRNA, yeah. but the traditional vaccines yeah. decline because of, uh, you know, the, the hospitals, the doctors have taken trust that is built up over a century and decimated it over one product. Absolutely. So. Shame on them. Yeah. And then at the same time, it's come out, uh, Biden really, uh, the Biden administration has given over a billion dollars to the media companies now, <laughs> the ones we expect, CNN and, yeah. and MSNBC and NBC and all that, mm-hmm. but also Fox News and Newsmax in order, they were given this money to promote and portray the vaccines in a positive light. So there is this propaganda aspect to all of this as well. Now, Brooke, we, I started to touch on this when we were sitting down here. But I've been explaining, and I want to do it now because I think this is a great thing for you to to kind of grasp as far as what they're doing here with this money because it's it was the same in New Zealand. It was one point five billion that was going to local media outlets to promote local news. So we have this idea of well, part of the communist takeover and moving into socialism or communism is they nationalize the companies. I think this is a new model, a new mechanism where instead of taking over the companies and then running them into the ground because the government isn't really great at running much of anything, they just pay them bribe money to push the agenda, which has really the same effect as nationalizing because now they're, they're being supported by the state and the state has, it's the same reason that um, foreign aid is is going out to all of these countries so that that money comes with strings and the government can pull on those strings to push their agenda and that's exactly what's happened here with covid anything you want to add to that are you just really trying to kill my night sam i mean just kidding yeah yeah you know i think there's so many people that just i think just still have such a hard time mm-hmm. imagining that that that's what's happened and what has mm-hmm. you know been going on for for all this time. And sometimes you know, even for me, sometimes it's easier just to kind of just walk away from that and yeah. you know, not 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 think about it. Yeah, I think we have to. You know, like I sure. think. No, I, I agree totally. I mean, we got to open people's eyes can. to it. Because it's mm-hmm. once it loses its mystique or its, um, you know, like they depend on people not understanding this in order for the propaganda to be effective. And once they realize it, it loses, you know, it doesn't matter how much they spend. Like CNN comes out and says something. Now I know, oh, okay, that's probably not true. What are they trying to distract me from is the next question that's popping into my head after that. And that's as a result of, you know, seeing these connections and the manipulation and the collusion between government and the media and so forth. It's just, 
that's the problem of the state getting bigger and bigger over time is its influence and tentacles stretch further and further into more and more aspects of our life. And I think, well, I think you know, ahead. the way that you've ex- explained it, you know, and we've, we've had longer conversations kind of, you know, um, kind of about this, but two, when you're, when, when somebody is, is finally understanding what you, what you were just saying, you know, not to be, they don't need to be treated like, you know, I've been called an idiot and, you know, how stupid are you? You, you, mm-hmm. you trusted your government. You trusted the FDA. Well, yeah. Uh, again, I'm not so naive to think that there's not some corruption, but I certainly didn't understand to, you know, that it went as far and as deep as it does. So I, I, I you know, I'm just not, I'm just a nice person. You know, I don't like, yeah. I don't like seeing people, be mean to other people mm-hmm. and you know on social media if somebody is is saying something ugly to me i just you know i'm gonna call you out and then i'm just gonna block you yeah um but but there's no reason there's no reason to be and treat people a certain way because you realized it or you know sooner than they did in my case um i start. it was i don't know 10 15 years ago I was like a Republican and voted and, you know, did all believed in the whole thing. Right. And I start hearing these ideas from a friend of mine, Ian, that ran a nationally syndicated talk radio program. And I, I fought it for six months. Like I, I, you know, did my deep dive into it to really absorb it all. And like was really exposing myself to a lot of these new ideas. And it, you know, Ron Paul's the one that, really sent me down this direction. I went to one of his campaign rallies and his opponent, uh, there's this guy grabs me with my big camera walking in to the same one I brought out to, to, uh, capture you. And he's like, are you here for the so-and-so rally? I'm like, no, I don't know who that is. He goes, Oh, well I'm the campaign manager. And so what had happened, his Ron Paul's primary opponent had set up a, an event at the same center as the Ron Paul event and was trying to capture the media attention and wanted me to come in and film his guy. And so Ron Paul gave the one speech to a standing room only. I captured some of that. I, he, there were more people that still couldn't get in. So then I went back to the room where the guy tried to rope me in and set up and filmed a little bit of them. And it was like angry, hate, hateful rhetoric and just, you know, really, politics as usual kind of thing. But while that was going on, I pan over and looking out the windows are like 2000 people. Mind you, there's like 40 people in this room and they've got the free donuts and everything at the back and free drinks. And so they tried to bring as many people in as they can. And it just, people weren't having it. And Ron Paul's out there speaking to like 2000 people doing a second speech because they just couldn't fit everything in there. So you know, people are waking up. It takes time. Don't worry about your journey. And, you know, um, uh, Maddie DeGarry's mom, I've heard her on one of the weekly phone calls, either Steve Kirsch or, or FLCCC or something. And she was getting on to people 
who were saying mean things about, well, how could you do this to your kid? And she's like, look, I, I didn't know. And this is not helpful. And just stop it. Yeah. It's, we yes. can't attack these people. They, uh, mm-hmm. and like, I feel sorry for that mom that's there. Hold on. Let me mute this. <laughs> I'm getting a whole bunch of messages. There we go. Um, I, I feel sorry for them because mm-hmm. they've been they've been led down this path and propagandized and manipulated and everything else, and they just they have no idea what they're doing. Or uh, yeah. yeah, get it? I get it. So, okay, let's wrap up here with the video. For sure, yes, yes. The article that was released in in the BMJ. <sighs> a peer-reviewed medical journal that's, what, 100 years old? I can't remember exactly, but that, that, that article immediately was censored and slapped with a missing context label for, you know, just showing documents and telling a story. Not my story, but showing documents of what I reported to the FDA. It's wild, wild. I have a little different of a perspective because I have access to the data and a knowledge about clinical trials that most people do not. I, 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 really, I really don't know. I've always been very careful not to, because I'm not a doctor, because I'm not a scientist, not to give people medical advice. You know, I, I, I have said before to, if you have a primary care provider or a, a family physician, that you trust to follow their guidance, but I, I don't know anymore. I don't. I really don't. I don't. I don't even trust my own government anymore. I've I've seen what's happened to science and clinical trials and regulatory bodies over the last year and a half, and I I don't like I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like what's happened to me, and the intimidation tactics and, you know, the things that are being done to me right at this moment to keep me quiet. I, I, I don't like it, and, but also at the same time, I'm not going to stand for it. You know, it just makes me want to get my information out there to more people. So that, that's really my goal. You know, I, I appreciate hearing from people that I'm brave and... Sorry... I appreciate the feedback from people thanking me for coming forward. And I guess my message for anybody is if there are more people out there that have information that they think may not matter or they think, you know, is the key to whatever, just come forward. You know, there, there are people out there that are willing to help. You know, while some days I feel alone, most of the days I don't because I have support of my family and friends and people like yourself. I know that it's scary to come forward when you have information that, <laughs> you know, potentially has, has the ability to affect so many things. But, you know, people are, people are dying and people are being injured. And maybe it's because of the vaccine. Maybe it's not. I, I don't want to get and go down that road um, but the information's vital so we are all able to make a fully informed decision which goes back to that informed consent and why it's so important correct 
we have to we have to know the truth and if if anybody out there has has that they need to come forward with it okay brooks jackson I am brookjackson.com is yes. where people can find you. Thank you. I think what you're doing is very brave Thank and very you. heroic. And Thank you very much. I appreciate much. you sitting down with us. I appreciate it. Brooke, uh, did you did you watch the little clip at the end that I did? Which one? Okay, so I guess I'll take that as a no. The the mom death stare. Oh, did you put that in there? I didn't show the mom death stare, but <laughs> I want to let the audience in because we had the dogs, the dogs were getting out and the kids were coming home from school and they didn't know we were there. And of course I'm in the living room where it's central to everything. So we had to stop a few times and, uh, uh-huh. your kid comes home and he's like opening cabinets as we're 30 <laughs> seconds from wrap up to get his VR goggles and put them on. And yeah, hold, hold, I'm going to play it that real quick. Funny. I hope you won't get too mad at me. Uh, no, no, I don't care. I think it's like funny. I said, I oh wait, I really felt so comfortable sitting down with you and talking to you. And um, you know, I'm, just, I'm not made for TV. I say um too much. I make this weird, you know, noise with my yeah, there were sorry, sorry. I was just trying to get oh, it. See, look at that. No, what did I do? I think I. There we go. Now I'm on the right one. Okay, here it is after this <laughs> come on gosh Sam. people like yourself that <clears throat> you know just uh and now the dog's out that wasn't me sorry no, it's okay come on, come on. <laughs> the mom stare the death stare. <laughs> we were like 30 seconds away. I know. <laughs> I school. I understand how it got. Yeah, she just got out of school. Don't put that mom death stare on video. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I Shame hope you don't you. mind. I think it's funny. No, I know. I know. Hey, listen, I'm just, you know, um, I'm a mom. Exactly. You know? I, uh, I'm not made for TV. I don't like looking at myself right now. I'm super self-conscious. Yeah, but that, that was the point. Gonna... That was the reason I wanted that in there to let people know you're just a human, just like them. <clears throat> yeah. You have a family and kids and problems and everything else. Sure. And you're you're just trying to help and us I out. And I make mistakes. Yeah. I make mistakes. Me too. And so. it's okay to say that. And I think that that needs to happen. <laughs> Uh, that needs to be admitted by a bunch of people. And maybe maybe that'll happen one day. Maybe it won't, but... I, I think it's coming like a freight train um, with, you know, I... I uh, here, I'm going to switch away from you for just a minute here and... Thank you. <laughs> just show you, this is on Gab. I've started kind of... I had this beautiful, like, five-month-long vaccine injury thread of all the different things that happened. And uh, so I'm, I'm very well aware of, like, some of the different events and things. But the comments in the last month, I think, have really changed from I know somebody to, uh, you know, this is a case of a, of a 22-year-old that was found dead at a California college that required vaccines for uh, admission. That was mm-hmm. the second one. The, they're both athletes. There was also, uh, hold on, right here. Oh, wait. 
Okay, let me see. What did I do? Oh, yeah, right here. Here's another uh, Olympic gold medalist that's been found dead. And then uh, this was a guy, Geronimo, on Twitter that tweeted that I feel depressed about being coerced into having the COVID vaccine with all the terrible adverse events that are coming to light now. I feel it's only a matter of time before something terrible happens to my health, which makes me live in a constant state of fear and misery, which is like, you got to get away from that because that affects your immune system. And Twitter labeled this misleading. They turned off comments, they turned off likes, and they tried to, you know, hide the link to be able to share it. And it's just like, wow. And then here's, here's one from Dr. James Olson. All in the past year, my mechanic had a heart attack. The shop owner and his son died. Five mechanics and tow truck drivers died all at one shop, all between 30 and 55. Nobody's going to tell me that's normal. I had known these people for 15 years and nothing was wrong with them. We're seeing it in the insurance data. Uh, There's the article about Biden uh, funneling money and so forth. And it's just, I think it's coming to light because the sheer numbers of people uh, having these problems and um, you know, it's, it's politicians, the, the, one of the uh, Australian senators who has said um, it's your duty to go and get vaccinated. She, she's dead. She died of a heart attack. I watched a video of a news anchor, yet another new one that I haven't even posted yet. The segment starts and she rolls off the back of her chair and falls to the ground. I I mean, it's just, it's becoming so visible that um, they risk losing too much credibility trying to deny it, which is why I think they're trying to like scapegoat it into all of these other different areas and hope that you know, somehow they can get away with it. And I, I don't think that they will. So anyway, closing thoughts. Thank you <laughs> for coming all the way out to my house and doing a great job. Like I said, it was, I've done a, quite a few interviews, but not very many where I felt just comfortable. And like I was talking Good. to a friend, you know, I mean, from the moment, the moment we started talking, I just, I felt, um, you know, just comfortable in, in talking to you. So I appreciate that and I appreciate what you're doing to get all of this information out, whether you agree with it or not. We may not agree on everything, um, but I, I just appreciate you very much. Thank you. I, I, I And I, the feeling is very mutual, uh, Brooke. I think what you're doing is heroic and, and certainly appreciate it. And, you know, for my audience, please, guys, take this interview and share it with people and post it, cut it up. There's some more cuts. I'll probably make another little demo reel of this thing talking about, you know, the owners being enrolled in the trials and some of the other things that I didn't even have a chance to get in the first one and share these around and let people see this because I think, you know, you just had some incredible things to say that people don't realize this is like what's getting what's going unnoticed and what the regulators are turning a blind eye to and then coming out and telling us that these products are 100% safe and effective and it's just it's such an absolute lie and a travesty so yeah and i guess you know just in closing this is like this is not brooke jackson's story 
this is what I experienced, certainly what I saw firsthand in, in a lot of, of, um, a lot of the time, but these are internal company documents. These are just, I mean, I'm handing everything over to them. This is what their documents say. This is where they say they're committing fraud. This is where they say their temperature um, storage was not what it was supposed to be. So mm-hmm. sorry, my kids, That's my fine. kids fine. are like standing here trying to, to get in my office. I'm distracted, but yeah, this isn't, this isn't my, my information. This is really even Tavia's information and some, you know, phone calls and recordings and texts that I took that I handed over. So, you know, that's just, that's, I guess, just so shocking that that still hasn't, just hasn't even been looked into. Yeah, it is. It is. And I, I like, in my case, I almost, like, I, I've given up on the state ever redeeming itself. And I just feel like at some point we have to be the solution and we have to start creating these kinds of alternative systems like i've i've had mary bowden on the show a couple times and you know mm-hmm. when I, the first time i had her on i'm yeah. like uh are you treating vaccinated patients she's like no no what do you mean i'm like well i think there's a lot of vaccine injured that like could use your help and i think she went and looked into it and now that's a significant portion of her patient base that she's actually able to help these people and i know at one time she was looking at like either buying or leasing out a hospital to kind of get And she doesn't do the insurance system and Mm -hmm. all that. She's like, it's just too much overhead. It's too much work. And I know this from, you know, working in the flood business with my brother occasionally, it is a lot of hassle. And at some point, I think the ultimate solution for humanity is to just kind of get away from these systems as best we can and start creating alternatives that do function. And, um, I I think we've got on the horizon, take away all the conflicts of interest, Yeah, you know, that there's a start. Yeah. Well, and I think we're heading into hyperinflation and I think crypto is going to go crazy and I'll, I'll help you with some crypto stuff offline to kind of position yourself for that. One of the other things I was going to talk about on the show tonight when uh, the Wall Street bets thing happened and they they did the short squeeze on uh, AM's GameStop and uh, mm-hmm. they had to cheat the and system AMC. to prevent that from skyrocketing and these hedge funds, funds from losing billions and um, what is it, Robinhood would have been wiped out of business. Um, the next move was silver and I said, if people go after physical silver, eventually industrial demand is going to run out and uh, there will be a short squeeze that they cannot paper over because uh, the, these markets are manipulated with paper options that don't actually have physical silver backing them up. And we had an options delivery day here just recently. And for like the first time ever, uh, 50, usually when people signal, I want to take delivery of my silver because they're like a Tesla or a jewelry maker or a mint that mints their own silver coins or something like that. They want to take delivery right away so that they're not paying storage fees and insurance and so forth. So they take delivery on the first. Well, we were like two weeks past the options where a billion uh, ounces of 
paper silver were traded hands, meaning they were creating silver to sell into the market that didn't exist to keep the price down. And then when it came time for delivery, the, I can't remember if it was CME or LBMA, they still had 50% of their deliveries outstanding. And the only reason for that to really ever happen is because they don't have it to send in the first place. So I think we're getting to the point where they're about to run out of physical silver. Demand's going to outstrip supply. They won't be able to paper that over because you'll have people that need it for production that are unable to get it. And once that starts happening, I think this whole kind of ball of wax comes undone. And that's why the Federal Reserve and J.P. Morgan Chase and some of these others have um, worked so hard to manipulate the gold and silver markets, which I, you know, the first time I heard that, I'm like, that sounds crazy. What are you talking about? But, you know, it's absolutely happening. Um, and the reason that they do that is because those are bellwethers for inflation. And what are we having now? Record inflation. Prices are going yeah. up. People are seeing this when they figure out, hey, if I buy this laundry detergent next month when I need it, it's going to cost twice as much. So I might as well get it this month. The store shelves empty. I went to, uh, you know, the local dollar store a little bit earlier and took a picture. And of course, at the same time, you've got supply chains uh, breaking down. This was the, this was the medicine aisle. And I don't know how well you guys will be able to see that, but most of those little gray um, things right here are empty. Like this was 80% empty. And it's just the the whole system it starts to grind down and grind down as more things break and i think um it's going to be a real challenge for governments for a lot of companies to continue to operate in this environment and i think we're heading into a period where there's going to be a lot of chaos but at the same time a lot of opportunity to reinvent ourselves coming out the other side and so what I try and impart on my audience and people like you is that I hope that those are alternatives that move away from granting one group a monopoly over the practice of medicine, over, you know, the regulation of pharmaceutical drugs or whatever. And we allow competition. Yeah. We allow choice because that's the only way to get us away from these conflicts of interest that are at the root of the problem that problems that we're facing today. Well, that was, that was encouraging to hear that, you know, um, all right, good talk. Good talk. <laughs> good talk. Good talk. Yeah. But no, it is, I, you know, I agree. I, I you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, once, once we get past all this chaos that, you know, we come out, um, better and, for it. You and know? I, and, I think, the way to protect yourself kind of going into this is, you know, basic food and water, but also silver and physical silver that you, you know, buy at a local coin shop or order online and take physical delivery, uh, as well as some crypto, because there's going to be this huge transfer of wealth as people realize that dollars go in the way of the dinosaur and I need to buy something with it before it doesn't buy anything anymore. And I think, that's where we're heading. That's what all this stimulus is about. At the same time, what the state is going to try and do is roll out their CBDCs where they control every aspect of how you spend your money, where you spend your money, 
what you're allowed to spend your money on the, the times, you know, Oh, you're, you're out during a, uh, a curfew. So you can't use your, your debit card during this time. So it, you know, like that's the, the level of financial control that they want over all of us. And I think the whole COVID thing and what they've done with the pandemic and so forth is all tied into that as well. And, and I, th- I think it's just so important to see the, the big picture of where they're trying to take us and how they're trying to use this uh, crisis to push their agenda further. So food yeah. for thought. Definitely. I'm taking notes. That's okay. what I'm doing. Good deal. <laughs> well, Brooke, um, thank you. I think, uh, they're, they're saying thanks a lot. They really appreciate you. Great show. Brave woman. Um, somebody else had a comment here about something else, <laughs> but anyway, you get the oh, idea. My daughter just came to the door and she said, are you ever going to get off the phone? Well, with that, I will let you get back to your family. I appreciate you uh, jumping on and sitting down with me. That was wonderful. I want to connect you up with some other people behind the scenes, and maybe we can do this again sometime later and touch on some different aspects and so forth. So, Right on, right on. All right. Thank you. Well, thanks again. I appreciate it, Sam. I'm sure we'll be talking soon. All right. Have a lovely, lovely evening. Bye-bye. Take care. Okay, and let me see if I can get the uh, chat. Sometimes it will refresh, sometimes it doesn't. All right, if you guys have any questions for me, thanks so much to Brooke. She is really awesome. She's a fantastic activist. She's, um, you know, just a mom trying to figure out life. And um, hold on, let me see what's going on here. Oh, no, that was not the right one. Whoops. There we go. Very good. So, yeah, advice to you guys, not financial advice, but um, silver stands a good chance of doing something really amazing here in the in the short term. I, I think we're hitting that brick wall. It's going to come in the next, uh, you know, I've said hyperinflation this year. I think silver is going to be sort of the one of the bellwethers that tells us we're getting real close to it. And we've already had that sign with this last delivery where they couldn't deliver half the silver that uh, was requested for physical delivery. And they had to trade a billion silver paper, silver shares in order to keep the price from rising just the $2. I think it's at 27 now. It's been 22, 24 for quite a while. So there you go to infinity and beyond. So I've got... Another one of these that I want to do, um, I don't want to go into details, but I, I have a couple of them actually that I'm working on behind the scenes because I think these are really effective and uh, I will let you guys know, kind of we'll put that as, as I put those together. Um, I've thought about like what I want to do with the show, where I want to take it. And I talked about some of the Reiki stuff that I'm considering doing and heading in that direction. And at the same time, Um, I feel like, uh, we need to, you know, when I was talking with Brooke, one of the things I talked to her about is we got to be the solution. We can't sit around and wait for the government to fix these problems for us. 
And as part of that, we need to start figuring out what are, what are some of these treatments that are effective, what's working, what's not. And I want to help um, move that ball down the field, I guess is the best analogy I can come up with. I want to have some of those discussions here on the show. I want to start putting that information together with you know, a lot of detail and a lot of science backing it up. We've got people researching, we've got people who are biologists and like really understand this stuff that want to help me in this effort. Uh, I'm getting doctors and, and researchers and stuff coming forward, reaching out to me behind the scenes to help me understand this stuff. And I think, I think we can make a big difference with helping some of these people who have been fooled by this thing, who have been injured, who are suffering I don't think we're going to be able to help them all, but um, there's got to be something we can do. So there you go. All right, folks. I think that's it for me. And uh, I I think I'm going to be with my daughter at the farm next weekend. So I might do the, the live stream on Monday as I typically do. And uh, that's it. I'll be doing something else in the meantime, sticking my nose under a tent and seeing what I turn up until then. We'll catch you on next broadcast. Bye, everybody. Yo, yo, I swear this new generation lost the plot. You shook our feds, but you're saying fuck the cops. All this beefing over post calls that's gotta stop. Evil families run the world, you don't run your block. You're not certain cause you're rolling with a knife, G. If you're a man, put the weapon down and fight me. I just be myself, that's why there's no one like me. Depending on my chain, protects me from the 5G. V gang, and no cows milk in my tea. Clean smoke, and no chemicals in my weed. I refuse to have your vaccine inside me. Fuck your new normal and your COVID 19. Sometimes at night, now I like to read a book I don't trust Bill Gates or that Elon Musk Black the Ripper spoke out and then he got took And Chip Mun did say shit because he got shot They want shook. a vaccine all nations, that's why it's vaccination But can I get a natural cure in the equation? We need to unite, no more separating Free your mind, keep your mind elevated. They want a vaccine all nations, that's why it's vaccination But can I get a natural cure in the equation? We need to unite, no more separating Free your mind, keep your mind elevating. Bond the government, I'm done with the system I can't let my brothers or sisters fall victim You ever heard about this track and chasing chip ting? It's the mark of the beast, they must be tripping Free Assange and shout David Icke I hope Edward Snowden's trial goes alright because I'm trying to stand for what's right Whatever's in the darkness will always come to light Yo, this world's run by some evil Satanists They're playing with our lives And they're playing with some kids From Epstein to Prince Andrew to Clinton It's time to make a stand for the innocent Invisible technology killing slyly Can someone tell me why they rolled out 5G? They'll turn it up and call it the second wave And have that Mark Hancock say it's just they the base They want a vaccine all nations, that's why it's vaccination But can I get a natural cure in the equation? We need to unite, no more separating Free your mind, keep your mind elevated. They want a vaccine all nations, that's why it's vaccination But can I get a natural cure in the equation? We need to unite, no more separating 
through your mind, keep your mind elevated. They want a vaccine all nations, that's why it's vaccination. But can I get a natural cure in the equation? We need to unite, no more separating. Free your mind, keep your mind elevated. They want a vaccine all nations, that's why it's vaccination. But can I get a natural cure in the equation? We need to unite, no more separating. Free your mind, keep your mind elevating.